WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 312. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In today's episode, naked in the bathroom, an elk downs a helicopter, another unreliable airspeed event, more news, your feedback, and this week's plain tale, The Vengeance of Penamund. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 312 is ready for pushback. Hello everyone and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's a, an aviation podcast. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, and I'm an airline pilot, a captain for a major U.S legacy carrier based in Atlanta, Georgia. Also joining us today from across the pond, from his sprawling country estate outside of London, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, professional photographer, and currently captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hello there, Jeff. Uh, every time I'm just before I'm about to speak, it says retard. <laughs> Sometimes it kind of puts me off. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I think that Nev uh, Nevsky, um, uh, Kevin in Norway, that uh, came up with that original work. I think he may have done that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I think he probably did. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm should. lovely to be back on the show again. I uh, am back from uh, Boston, where I I looked for Dana, but I couldn't find him. But uh, and that was a bit of a uh, oh, a little bit of a story there. But uh, well, I'm sure we'll come under that later. Great to be back on the show again. Great to have you back with us. And also joining us wow. from <laughs> from somewhere in the coastal North Carolinas, uh, a barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello from uh, beautiful North Carolina today. Uh, actually, Wilmington, North Carolina, very close to a place called Cape Fear. Uh, for those folks that don't understand what Cape Fear is, it's Cape Fear. Oh, Fear. Fear, ah. fear that's correct. I'm fear. sitting at the hotel looking across the... Uh, Across the river at a World War II battleship, the United States uh, USS North Carolina, and uh, that's my view for the day to be able to to be a part of the show. So I'm um, smile all smiles today, and looking forward to another great adventure. Now, so you you haven't experienced any technical difficulties uh, at all today? Dana? I'm putting that in the past. <laughs> now. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to let that be. Uh, uh well a bygone at this point because if I let it bother me I won't have a good show okay so we're gonna that's just move on what do they say water under the bridge or something like water, that water yeah and I see I'm seeing two bridges with water under both sides of it so we're in good shape oh very good very good 
All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, we don't have Dr. Steph with us today because sadly, oh, we feel so bad for her. I think she's out on the slopes in Park City, Utah skiing. I, I mean, no, I take that back. She's at a, she's hard at st- studying or listening to a lecture or something like that at a, at a medical conference. But I really think yeah, she's. Yeah, I know. Really tough, isn't it? Yeah. But we see having a medical conference at a ski resort. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I just don't understand that. Well, Perhaps the rooms are really cheap or something because everyone's out skiing. I don't know. Well, good thing they're all doctors because if one of them happens to run into a tree going down the slopes when they should be inside uh, listening to the conference, then they'll all be able to help each other. Uh, yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, let's see. And apparently, again, we've, we're starting to dip down below that 50% level. Micah says it's water over the bridge. I've never heard that. Water over the bridge? Well, that would be yeah, difficult. How does you get water? It would be a viaduct then. It would be water over the viaduct. I don't understand. I don't think I can trust anybody in that chat room to tell us exactly <laughs> what it is. So I'm going to ignore you. Putting you on permanent ignore. Well, not permanent. Temporary ignore. Okay, well, uh, Captain Nick, uh, you said you were in Boston uh, this past week? Yeah, I'm not going there again. Horrible place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a bunch of clones looking, looking like me, talking like me, walking around, huh? Uh, that wasn't so bad. You know, I hit a few just to make myself feel better. But uh, um, no, it was trying to get home, trying to get out of the damn place. You know, they, they, they're just so clory. They want you to stay. They nearly scuppered my uh, flight home. So uh, I had a combination of problems, an aircraft with uh, a snag and oily smell in the cabin, uh, no APU, which was probably the source of the oily smell, but hadn't been uh, fixed. Um, and uh, <laughs> someone just said it wasn't a viaduct, it was an aqueduct. Yeah, some no, Bo, typical. Thank you, Bo. Well, since, since we're that, like going right off track again, um, let me just say, like a bridge over troubled water. So a bridge, the water, the bridge is over the water. So that's water under the bridge. Come on. What it hit Jeff, you say you're gonna say, but you didn't say you're gonna sing. I you should have warned me. It could take my earplugs out first. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh well. Uh, so what the heck were you talking about, Nick? Something about Boston? I was oh. talking about a smelly airplane. A smelly, a smelly airplane. airplane. <laughs> okay. So uh, aviation related. Yeah, and the the lovely uh, Acme engineers that were seeing us off uh, weren't qualified to do ground runs. So when we got to the airplane, uh, we had to stop bringing all the cargo and passengers on, get everyone off, close up, ground run all the engines, uh, play with the bleeds to make sure that the smell had stopped because they'd reported it on departure out of London and on taxi in to Boston. So we're going, what? It's obviously still occurring. Anyway, we couldn't make, make it happen, so we signed it off. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we brought everyone on. The cargo was laid on because uh, of the delay. Uh, we de-iced. God, it took forever. I thought Boston would be really switched on to uh, de-icing. It took forever. And I'm Don't not they don't kidding. get snow there. So how would they know how to de-ice? Yeah. Well, I must admit, the, the guys that uh, in the know say that uh, whoever does it there, they they – have gone downhill over the last couple of years, which surprises me because we think they get a bit of practice. By the by, we eventually got um, 
de-iced and anti-iced. We, I reckon we had about an hour's holdover looking at the amount of snow. Tried to push back. Uh, we had to start two engines on stand because we had no APU. So you've got to start up a couple of engines, get the electrics all fired up. Then you can disconnect external power, push back. The damn tug got stuck in the snow trying to push us back. He couldn't push us against the idle power of two mighty Rolls-Royce Trents. Um, so uh, that was a wee bit disappointing. He jiggled us about a bit, as you do, uh, and um, now he eventually gave up. And the guy on the headset said, well, you might actually be able to taxi away from here. But I, but looking at all the traffic that has jammed up around us trying to get past us, I said, well, not unless you clear all these vehicles away. And there were snow plows and lorries. And anyway, they did a reasonable job. They got all the vehicles uh, um, back away from us. And we managed to taxi out of that tight little, because we were only halfway out of the parking position, out of that the tight little spot. And But, of course, all these added delays uh, had eaten into our holdover time. Then they changed the damn runway because the runway we were expecting uh, uh, was now uh, snowed over and closed. They gave us a runway, and uh, good job we were careful about doing the fake figures, despite the fact we're trying to tax out, etc. because that was too short. And if we'd tried to get everyone off that one, we'd have run off the end. So we uh, suggested they gave us a different runway, which they accepted, but, oh, we're going to get delayed because that's the landing runway. It just it just went on. Uh, so, with only minutes to spare, we lined up on eventually lined up on this runway, and I looked at it and went, "Oh my God, this <laughs> this is just solid snow." But of course, it was the sterile area, the um, undershoot before the display threshold that was snowy. Once you got onto the the runway proper. It was uh, it was swept and de-iced, although they were about to close it because of the amount of snow that was coming down. Um, so we accepted that, uh, and, and the first 1,500 feet, say 1,000 feet, was snowy, uh, and we just blasted off uh, and got airborne quite safely and happily. But uh, what it did mean was that we had sprayed a lot of uh, slush and snow up into the wheel wells, something I didn't really thought about until we taxied in and as we were parking up and the aircraft's obviously warming up in nice, warm London, <laughs> not really, but you know what I mean, um, the engineer said, yeah, there's a whole heap of snow and ice falling out of your wheel wells. It's, it, and, of course, we'd sprayed a lot of this stuff up inside the a wheel A little wells, bit of Boston you, now in London. There you go. That's <laughs> exactly. right. Luckily, we didn't drop it on any postman. So, yeah, uh, we uh, that's going to be something that we may uh, talk about a little bit later in the show. Yeah. yeah. So that was a bit of an event that trip, I have to say. It was uh, it was, you know, not a pleasant evening. A lot going on. I was very pleased to have another captain beside me because uh, we had run out of first officers and uh, he had been called out to fill in. He wasn't just a captain, he was a friend. He used to be my first officer in the old days, and now he's a uh, training captain as well. So he knows his stuff, and actually we worked together very well because there was an awful lot to do, and particularly as we got time pressure towards the end, there, it would have been very easy to uh, slip up on one of our procedures and, and make a mess of the whole thing. So I was very pleased with the trip as it, as it went off. It was just one of those trips where you look back and say, I didn't like doing it, but we did it right. It was uh, rather pleasing from that point of view. So that's the reader 
Reader's Digest condensed version of all those events. If you want to hear uh, Captain Nick talk about it in much more depth, you should be part of our Coffee Fund cadre. And then that's when you can get the crew logs. And uh, he has a, uh, uh, how long was that crew log? About 25, 30 minutes, something like that. But I mean, again, you know, you you really condensed it quite a bit there um, on this show. But if you want to hear a lot more detail about uh, the whole, the whole situation that uh, Captain Nick uh, endured, uh, please consider Joining the Coffee Fund cadre by becoming part of the or uh, contributing to the Coffee Fund, but we'll talk about that. Yeah, there've been a lot of good uh, crew logs lately. Yeah, Captain Jeff just posted uh, from your uh, team. <laughs> posted two uh, this morning. Uh, one from uh, Captain Dana and also from Doctor Steph. So, anyway, if you want to hear some more uh, behind the scenes kind of stuff going on at the APG, uh, you should you should check that out. Uh, so what, so since you've been home, Captain Nick, has it been pretty quiet for you? Yeah, just did a, um, uh, crew log, uh, not a crew log, sorry, a plane tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, now I'm, I've got the rest of the month off really just until a, uh, Newark, uh, just at the end of the month. So I've, I've got about five or six days, which is very pleasant. Looking forward to that. And I can get over this cold, which is still sort of lingering, and I got some physio for my back uh, yesterday. So hopefully I'll be fit, properly fit by the time I next fly. Excellent. So Dana, catch us up with what has been going on with you. My life's boring compared to that. Um, boring is you good know, though. Yeah. And I uh, did uh, the crew log this week, which is my second edition. Uh, this time I didn't cover... Um, a specific topic that was requested, but I'm going to keep people tantalized and waiting. So stay tuned. Uh, if you uh, would like to continue to listen to what I have to say, I hope, um, and I'll be putting more out there as, as time goes on. And I tried a little, a uh, little something new with that crew lock. I actually used my iPhone. I was in the, uh, um, the Windsor locks airport, which is known as Bradley, which serves the, two cities of Hartford and Springfield, Hartford, Connecticut, and Springfield. And they had a an adapter for the iPhone that was available that allowed me to plug my microphone directly into it. So um, I was quite keen to see it on clearance, and then found out that they had 20% more off on that clearance. So it was quite a nice purchase. It worked out great. And that's the, the latest edition of my second edition of a crew log. So I, I hope uh, to hear some feedback on that. And I'm trying to improve. Um, as uh, as we all are, and trying to make that better. I was listening here to Captain Nick about uh, the ice and the wheel wells, uh, the uh, snow and the wheel wells. That could have been actually a bigger, much bigger issue that if it had frozen the wheels around the wheels, um, certainly in a smaller type aircraft, certainly could have caused a problem with getting the landing gear down. So that came to mind when I was just listening to what Nick had to say. Uh, the interesting that I think that I did have happen this week is I did something called a green slip, Jeff. I almost, I think that's probably, since I've been at Acme, maybe my fifth or sixth green slip in 11 years. They had taken my two-day trip on Monday and Tuesday for training. Um, And when they did so, I said, well, you know, let me go ahead and throw a Hail Mary in here and see if I can get a green slip. As it turns out, it was the only green slip that was issued, and that was uh, given out at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, 3.30 in the morning, they called. I didn't even know who I was talking to. Sucker. So gone. 
What? <laughs> yeah, I said sucker. sucker. <laughs> so we'll see if we can get up. somebody to answer the phone at 3.30 in the morning. Yeah, and the ironic part is I had don't call me before 4 a.m. in really? the preferences. Yeah. Wow. So they call, they called me anyways, but that's all right. I took it, and it turned out to be a, a, a bit of a long day because we uh, ferried an aircraft up to Kansas City, uh, spent the day in Kansas City waiting for them to fix the other aircraft, which had a flap and slat issue, had been there for a couple of days. Um, and in doing so, uh, no, the uh, dive club president is there in Kansas City as a uh, as as a mechanic, I was invited down to the maintenance room and spent the well six and a half, almost seven hours down there. Went off airport to go get some pizza for the crew, and when I we came around Terminal C, which is closed in Kansas City, it's been closed, I think, um, roughly three to five years, I think, is what he told me. Um, much to my surprise, there was this beautiful thing, beautiful piece of artwork a former beauty of the sky, which is still my favorite aircraft. The TriStar was sitting there um, and it was in all its glory, it had its engines, had external power, air hooked up. Um, and I go into a lot more detail on the, uh, on my, uh, on my crew log. Uh, so if you want to tune into that, I'll get, you know, leave something for, for everybody to listen to. So I really enjoyed seeing the TriStar. Um, I was just mesmerized. And this week, uh, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give away what I bought this week, but hopefully one of these future shows, I'll have it available to show. So, anyways, um, that's that's about it. Uh, out here flying, had an easy day yesterday. I here for 32 ish hours in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, oh, speaking of Wilmington, North Carolina, um, brings back a lot of memories for me. Back in October and into November of the year of 2002. I was in Wilmington, North Carolina. That's when I began at Acme Jr., my flying career. This is where I took my first flight in Brasilia in training during the overnight hours. We would uh, work during the day and study and do our orals, and then they would actually put us in the aircraft to fly. In Wilmington, North Carolina, it was the first time I ever flew a commercial airliner. So that was that's brought has been bringing back some memories, and it really hasn't changed here a whole lot. Uh, some more restaurants, some really neat uh, uh, looking bars and restaurants here. Uh, a few of them ones that I remember from way back when, but downtown seems to be a little more um, lively than it has been in the past, and that was probably thirteen or fourteen years ago when the last time I was here. So kind of excited to be back here in Wilmington, enjoying a beautiful day. It's about seventy. So be high of 78 record uh, record temperatures for this time of the year around here. Um, and I'm um, having the unique ability to sit here and look outside and really enjoy the day. Now, did you say we were, um, before the recording started, um, you sent us a photo of your perch and what you were looking out at oh, out yeah. the window. And then you said something about it's your captain's room. So is, is he there right now or does he mind that you've set up all this stuff in his room? Captain's room. Yeah. Didn't you say that? No. Okay. Well, I need to look back. I, maybe, maybe I said it. I have no idea. Sometimes, yeah. you know, you know, I'm suffering from the CRS, you know, what CRS mm-hmm. is can't, can't remember, remember stuff. Stuff. Mm-hmm. stuff. Yes. Family show. So anyways, <laughs> uh, I am and I had the unique opportunity, um, way back when, when I was flying for Acme junior and flying the Brazilian and, and, also the the barbie jet me and the crj um 
I had the unique opportunity way back when. I think they've stopped it since. They used to have a little uh, shuttle uh, water taxi that would go across the river over to it. Uh, and I didn't see that today, so it would make it a lot more difficult to get over there. Although nowadays with Uber or a taxi, probably get over there uh, via one of the two bridges that goes over. But what I am in, uh, in, in referencing to is this beautiful battleship that's sitting across the river. It's called the USS North Carolina. I've had the opportunity to, um, to be on it before. Um, it's one of my things I really enjoy doing when I go to overnights uh, all over our country. I've been to most of the uh, World War II era wartime ships, and it's really a, a unique experience. So if you're ever in the Wilmington area, and that includes uh, not too far from Myrtle Beach, uh, Cape Fear, um, the Outer Banks, certainly if, if you have any interest, come on over here and take a look at the USS North Carolina. It is a living artifact and uh, beautiful to see. And quite honestly, sitting here... Um, it's just something really nice to be looking at when I'm when I'm sitting here. Well, doing I'm a living artifact as well. And you are. Uh, by the way, I figured out what happened there. Uh, you are not the one that said it was your captain's room. Captain Nick said captain's room. So, in our little private exchange. So sorry. Uh, That's yes. why well, I got future, confused. Future captain, I I haven't got the official training date, but it looks like uh, I'm supposed to start on May fifth. All, All right. right. Get nervous. Get nervous. Anyway, uh, this last trip that I had was a very nice trip. Left on Sunday, uh, was just one leg the first day, two legs the next day, two legs the third day, and then yesterday, just one leg home. So it was a very easy uh, trip to fly. And on, what was it, the third day, as I was walking off the airplane in Milwaukee, uh, I um, saw this person. And I'm thinking, he looks familiar to me. And then he comes up to me and says, hey, Captain Jeff. And it's Gary Cunahan. And Gary, I the reason why he looked familiar is because he was at the Wings Over Pittsburgh uh, gathering. And uh, we had breakfast with Gary at that little, remember that little uh, breakfast place that we went to, Nick? Um, oh, yeah, the one with the sleeping uh, car park. Yes. And it had a nice, we were kind of on the back deck and you could outside and we were listening to some of the air show jets yeah. practicing. Yeah, it was, it was a good spot. I loved all the paraphernalia on the walls, uh, mm -hmm. British uh, rock bands and things. Right. So uh, Gary uh, joined us there for breakfast and he hung out with us the whole, uh, the whole time we were there. Anyway, uh, it was him and uh, kind of caught me uh, by surprise. Cause I didn't know that he was going to be there. And so we walked together toward the front and, and I said, Hey, you know, you want to, if you're going to be in town here, because he doesn't live in Milwaukee, he lives uh, just over the border in Illinois. And, uh, I said, you know, you're, uh, why don't we, uh, you know, uh, get together for dinner a little bit later in a few hours. And he said, that's great because uh, I guess he has family in the area and he was going to run some errands and such. And so we did get together. He uh, came by the hotel, the uh, beautiful Hilton hotel in downtown Milwaukee, and we recorded this. Hello, folks. I'm with APG community member Gary Cunahan, right? Uh, from, well, first of all, let me tell you where I am. I'm in Milwaukee uh, and at a very nice historic property, uh, Hilton Hotel, right downtown. And as I was walking off the airplane today uh, in Milwaukee, I see this guy and I'm thinking, why? That, he looks very, very familiar to me. I think I've met him, and of course I have. Gary and I met at the Wings Over Pittsburgh 
air show in May of last year. And uh, he doesn't live too far from here, just over the border in uh, Illinois. Drove up here to uh, to run some errands and also to uh, bump into me at the airport. And uh, now we we're here, we just uh, enjoyed a sort of a dinner, kind of an appetizer, kind of a dinner uh, here uh, in the lobby of the Hilton Hotel. And it's uh, been great kind of catching up with Gary. Uh, Gary, say something to the community. Well, hello, everybody. And it's really good to meet, be able to meet up with Jeff again here after not having seen him for almost a year. There you go. I mean, what else could you say? We've been just talking about, we've been trying to solve the world's problems, and then we finally decided we must have bumped our heads or something, and there's no way we can solve the world's problems. But it's it's still fun to talk about it. Anyway, uh, but I'm, I'm glad that you... Uh, you know, made the made the trip up here, and um, enjoyed uh, the the food, and my non-alcoholic drink, and because I've given up alcohol for Lent, we'll see how long that lasts. It's still early, anyway. Um, and then, of course, as we always say, great conversation. And uh, want to say goodbye to the folks. Goodbye, everybody, and uh, I hope to make many more meets. Excellent. And, yeah, I hope to get, uh, see you up in uh, Oshkosh. Maybe maybe not this year because I don't think it's going to work out for our, our crew schedule this year, but uh, perhaps next. All right. Over and out. If I'm still alive, I'll be there. Yeah, it was great uh, meeting up with Gary again. Uh, as we always say, best part of uh, doing this whole uh, APG show is, you know, interacting with the APG community. So. Gary, great to see you. Hope to see you again soon. Perhaps uh, Oshkosh, not this year, but perhaps the following year and who knows where else. All right. Anything? uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else to mention. I think we have the website back on track. Um, Not exactly sure. It's not 100%, but it's um, 80%, we'll say. And we're still working on uh, making sure that that is running smoothly. And we really expect to get uh, the Plain Tales page up um, perhaps by the end of the month. Yes, I'm hoping so. I have some days off. I'm not scheduled to fly again until March 5th. I I do have a request to pick up uh, some extra overtime flying, but I'm pretty full for the month. I've done a lot of flying already this month, so there's probably a good chance that I'm not going to fly until, until March. So... I do have some time off. I was able to do a little bit of work on the Plain Tales uh, page on the website um, on this trip and uh, hope to do a little bit more work again um, in the in the coming days. And hopefully we'll we'll have something good to tell you about that uh, by the next show. Yeah, fingers crossed. All right. Well, let's move on, shall we, to the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah. As the Coffee Fun singers, the Coffee Fun chorus sing in the background, the Java Jive. Let me tell you a little bit about what the heck this Coffee Fund thing is. It's your way, if you have the resources to do so, to support the show financially. 
and a couple different ways to do that. One is what we call the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is uh, basically using PayPal to make a one-time, two-time, recurrent uh, donation, however you want to do it. And the other uh, method of contributing to the show is via Patreon. You can become a patron via Patreon. And uh, again, information about how you can do either or both methods is available over at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And since the last show, the Coffee Fun Classic Method, we have Marsuz Karmi, no, Karim, uh, Chris Randall, Alexandre Lyons, and Richard Adams. Hope I did that. Maybe it's Alexander. It's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-E. So that's what threw me off there. Alexander Lyons and Richard Adams. Again, they use the Coffee Fun Classic method. And we have a couple of new patrons over at Patreon. Yvonne Rinaldi and James Chen. So thank you for becoming producers of the show by using or becoming a patron at Patreon. And that's about it. So again, check it out over at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee if you want to become part of the Coffee Fun Cadre. Airlines flight from Anchorage to Seattle was forced to make a U-turn Wednesday due to a disruptive naked passenger, officials said. The and this is from foxnews.com. The naked re- passenger reportedly locked himself in the plane's restroom, took off all his clothes, and refused to comply with the flight crew's instructions. Alaska flight 146 from Anchorage to Seattle returned to Anchorage due to a passenger not following the flight attendant's instructions. <laughs> so they didn't mind him being naked. It's just that he wasn't doing as he was told to. Exactly. <laughs> that was just, you know, ancillary uh, to the uh, the whole event. Know. While no emergency was declared, the decision was made to return to Anchorage, the airline's spokesperson said. The FBI and airport police were present at the airport shortly after the plane landed in Anchorage. Kate Daniluk. Another passenger on the flight said she knew something was wrong because flight attendants kept walking back and forth in the aisles wearing rubber gloves. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, sounds exciting. Uh, the police came on and took him out the back door, Denelik said. The police came on and took him out the back door. Okay, great. I'm what glad they had another quote. You have a back door in a 737? Uh, yeah, they do have a back door, but I don't think it has any stairs connected to it. So they must have rolled up some air stairs or something. Oh, right. Okay. I say just tossed him out. Oh, that could be. Watch out. The first step's a doozy. <laughs> Imagine him sliding down the slide. 
No, Ouch. I can't imagine. Oh, you probably get like, you know, stuck. A little sideburn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Can, uh, can I say say the obvious here? Uh, sure. It, it says back here the uh, the uh, would not file flight attendant instruction while no emergency declared. Uh, going back a little bit further, took all his all of his uh, clothes off in the restroom. And refused to comply with the flight tents, uh, flight crew's instructions. So, in my miss, is this a misreport again? Did this person ever leave the restroom? Because I was just, I was reading, naked passengers reportedly locked himself in the plane's restroom, took off all his clothes, and refused to comply with flight crew's instructions. So, if he's naked in the restroom, what's wrong with that? I don't know. Um, perhaps there's something missing here to the, to the story. Exactly. I think it's a misreport. Mis, mis I, I would imagine that this person came out of the restroom or exposed himself yeah. uh, in some some form. Because how would they know that he was naked in the restroom? Hmm. Oh, the cameras just, that we have. The secret cam. Ooh. Oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah. I forgot. Shh, shh, um, I'll, I'll shh, edit that out. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> I just, I just want to correct and take time to to notice that the reporting here, again, the way that they wrote it, is probably not exactly correct. Well, you know what, this is. I have very little patience for stupidity. That is not what I intended to play, but that works. Um, <laughs> is that me or the? Reporter? I was hitting the B uh, <laughs> key on my keyboard, and that's supposed to ring the bell. But apparently, uh, I don't know what happened to my bell sound effect. <laughs> Must have gotten jumbled up. Anyway, uh, the first right, time, this is the very first time uh, on our show that we've actually read a uh, report that was inaccurate. No, oh, wait a minute. Well, no, it's not the first hang time. Hang on a minute. I, th I think if, if you just read on a bit, it would all have come clear because it says from the police, there was a subject on the aircraft that had barricaded or locked himself into the bathroom of the lavatory. Uh, the flight attendants did find that the subject subject was naked. So it sounds like he locked himself in. When they uh, unlocked it and forced their way in to get him out, they found he was naked. So yeah, there you go. I guess, and and it makes sense then that uh, the reason why uh, they they diverted not wasn't because the man was naked, but because they were probably telling him to get out of the bathroom because they were concerned that. This man is in the bathroom. What is he doing? And uh, so he wasn't not following. He was not following their instructions, and so they took the uh, the precaution of uh, diverting instead. So yeah, I guess it does yeah. kind of make sense. Turn around for that. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know. I'm not Neither sure. Do I. Yeah. Neither do I. I'm Unless there was sure some either. reason, you know, to think that this guy was like a terrorist and he was doing something, you know. Like setting up a bomb or something in there. I don't. I don't know. A, a naked bum. A naked okay. bum. <laughs> he was a naked bum, assembling a naked bomb. I was a thinking about a, a bomb that would come from a bum. So. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Let's not go Let's any go further go. there. Okay. No, nope, we're not going any further. No. Nope. Nope. Not saying one one extra word. Okay. Very good. Uh, let's see here. How about the next one? Item number two. Hi, ABG community. This is from Louisiana Steve. He says, beware of elk at altitude. And he refers us to a story in the USA Today. Leaping elk crashes low-flying research helicopter. Whoa. Helicopter, and they have, a, they have a picture here of the downed helicopter. Uh, the helicopter was trying to capture an elk 
uh, and the elk brought it down. The elk jumped into the chopper's tail rotor as the aircraft flew about 10 feet, three meters above ground in a mountainous part of eastern Utah with its crew trying to drop a net on the elk. The elk did not like the fact that they were trying to drop a net on it. And it jumped up, hit the tail rotor, and spun the thing out of control. And the two people on board the helicopter weren't seriously hurt. But we can't say the same of the elk. He he or she died of its injuries Monday afternoon. Well, it's a shame. When I first read this, all I could think about was that cartoon you some, I've seen many times of a pair of pilots in an airliner flying along. And in the middle of the clouds <laughs> in front of them, there's a mountain goat. And the captain's saying, oh, it's funny seeing a mountain go up yeah. go here at this allergy. Yeah, what, and all I, could, all I could think was to take out the mountain goat, put it in an elk. Yeah, exactly. That's my favorite far side cartoon, actually. Yep. What do you suppose an elk is doing, or a mountain goat is doing up here in the clouds? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. All right. Well, thank well, you. We're getting, we're getting a few Odia um, uh, comments yeah. in the chat room. Very clever thank chat you. room. Very clever. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Louisiana Steve, for that. Uh, let's see. Now, we talked about um, a uh, an event, an incident, an accident, actually, uh, killing everybody on board of an Antonov AN-148 that uh, crashed outside of uh, Moscow. Uh, on the last episode, and uh, saw this in the, I think uh, this is from the in the uh, Aviation Herald, not sure, although it doesn't look like it's formatted that way. Uh, should have done a better this is, job. Uh, flightglobal.com. Oh, Flight Global. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yep, that's what it is. Uh, Russian investigators have di- disclosed that seven instances of unreliable airspeed indications involving Sukhoi Superjet 100s, not the same as the one that crashed that we talked about the last time, uh, were recorded over a two-day period of heavy snowfall at Moscow. And I'm not even going to attempt to uh, to pronounce... Shemetivo. Okay. That sounded pretty good, actually. Um, yeah, I made, I made it out. Oh, well, good job. <laughs> so the, uh, the the accident investigatory agency that I was uh, trying to recall on the last episode, Rose of Yatsia. Uh, they have disclosed or said that the incidents were each characterized by different speed readings between the captains and the first officer's side, either during takeoff, the takeoff run or the initial climb. In all cases, which occurred over the 4th through the 5th of February, the crews opted to abort, take off, or return to the airport. The incidents occurred uh, among that two-day per- uh, yeah, during that two-day period, and they are among several safety events detailed by the regulator over the period. And apparently the, um, that time frame in that part of the world, uh, the, they were experiencing some pretty nasty winter weather uh the uh rosafiatia rosafiatia that uh said that the superjets could have been or the uh, icing on the superjets could have been caused by the freezing and heavy snow of water trickling down from the crown of the fuselage and uh, the cockpit windows so you know there were some more events um uh, related to blocked air sensors um, that, uh, again, brought down that 
uh, Antonov 148. Yeah, just another threat worth briefing when you're going to make an approach into foul weather like that. You know, it's mm -hmm. just worth covering these things and making sure you're clued up on what to do if uh, if you get it happen. It could happen to almost any aircraft if you get it severe enough uh, precipitation. It could momentarily block a pitot pube. Well, you got a episode or. If you go to uh, news item number five, um, this is from the Aviation Herald. A Transavia or Transavia, France, 738, Boeing 737-800 at Paris on the 8th of February. Uh, the, uh, let's see, IAS, AOA, and ALT disagree. They were accelerating from Paris's Orly, uh, heading to Marrakech, Morocco. Uh, they were accelerating through 90 knots for takeoff on runway 24 when the crew received a message, IAS disagree. The crew elected to continue the takeoff. The aircraft was in the initial climb when the crew received messages, AOA disagree, which is a angle of attack indicator, disagree, and ALT or altitude disagree. The crew stopped the climb at flight level 90 or uh, 9,000 feet and returned to Paris for a safe landing on Orly's runway 26, about 40 minutes after departure. The French BEA have rated the occurrence as an incident and have opened an investigation. Now, interestingly, here at the bottom, it says the previous evening, while en route on a ferry flight from Norwich uh, in the UK to Orly, following maintenance in Norwich, the AOA probe had encountered a first failure. So it looks like they didn't fix it. Apparently, yeah, it's interesting because it's a combination of sources uh, of information. So, IAS and altitude uh, come from air pressure. Uh, AOA is usually a separate uh, angle of attack vane, um, you know, a mm -hmm. little wing that sticks out and measures your angle of attack. So, uh, it sounds like it might have been whatever uh, concentrator, whatever little computer they have that combines that information and displays to the crew that might have been the fault. But uh, so I, I can't think of any other reason why you get all those three messages combined. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, that's kind of odd. Uh, but I guess the point that I wanted to, the reason why I included it in the news folder for this episode is just to, uh, again, reemphasize the fact that we as pilots need to know, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where you are unable to abort and you have to take the airplane in the air, you know, knowing those pitch pictures and power settings uh, could save your life. Oh, absolutely. Yep. All right. Stow them away, guys. Uh, number six. And this happened a little bit ago, uh, February 13th. Uh, we're recording the show today. I think it's the 22nd. Um, there was a United 777-200 over the Pacific uh, flying from San Francisco to Honolulu. And they were about 45 minutes prior to their estimated landing in Honolulu when parts of the right-hand engines, uh, part of the right-hand engine separated from the engine. So uh, the engine was a Pratt & Whitney 4077. The aircraft continued to Honolulu for a safe landing on runway 8 right about 45 minutes later. Passenger Maria Falashi reported there was a loud bang about 45 minutes prior to landing, followed by the whole aircraft shaking. She, she saw parts of the engine cowl at the engine inlet missing and took photos. And uh, if you'll look 
at this article from the Aviation Herald in the show notes. You'll see the same pictures, and I believe there's also a video to kind of give you an idea of how violent, you know, if we have a engine that's experiencing uh, a breakup like this, uh, how severe the vibrations can be and shake the entire airplane, even a big airplane like a 777. Uh, the NTSB have dispatched uh, investigators on site and have opened an investigation into the occurrence described as in-flight loss of engine cowling. I think it's they're probably going to find that it's more than just the cowling. I, there were some pictures and a different article I was looking at showing the part of a fan blade or perhaps an entire fan blade missing. Uh, so uh, that may have been yeah, what I, took the I had read off. it was a fan blade that had gone and uh, that had probably uh, had departed through the engine cowl and taken the cowling with it. But, uh, yeah, that's nasty. Yeah. And at least they weren't out in over the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They were basically just about ready to start their descent into mm-hmm. Honolulu anyway, which is... Uh, it, it, but it's also just a testament on how awesome uh, or how well these aircraft are really built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people listening to this may already know this, um, but engines are actually designed, if they have it become catastrophic, to fall off the airplane. They get to a point of a stress that they'll just, you know, depart the aircraft instead of taking the whole entire aircraft down. At least what that's what the design is. So taking a look at this picture, obviously it looks pretty pretty gruesome and fortunately it didn't do you know a whole lot of damage at least that i that i can see to the the wing i don't know you know haven't seen any pictures of the wing but certainly not catastrophic damage so it's just a testament to the engineering um that you know they do engineer these aircraft very well um pbs which is public broadcasting uh actually did a whole series on the manufacturing testing design of the triple seven it was a very, very good series. So you know, it's kind of where I'm, I'm deriving some of my in, you know, input regarding the, the strength of these aircraft mm-hmm. and how well designed they are. So you can't plan for everything. And you, you know, when you do have unusual circumstances like this, it just goes to show that uh, somewhere, some someplace, somebody's designing these aircraft to survive things like this. It's always interesting to read some of the comments, uh, although some of the comments in these Aviation Herald um, articles are are completely ridiculous and people making the comments uh, have no idea what they're talking about. But then on the other hand, there are times when uh, you get some, some pretty good information from people and they sound like they know what they're talking about. And they do discuss the fact that these giant engines on the triple seven do have uh, a system of uh, pins, shear pins that mount the uh, engine to the pylon and are designed that after a certain amount of oscillation and vibration that they'll actually shear and allow the engine to completely separate from the wing, which is, uh, you know, pretty interesting, but at least the, the vibration would stop. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, and the whole design of that is that, you know, it doesn't vibrate so much that it causes the aircraft to start coming apart. So yeah. that's why it's really designed. That'd be a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Not a good thing. Um, speaking of not a good thing, what are two words that come to mind that should not be put together? How about um, Steph and Beer? Uh, no, no. How about <laughs> Dana and Mad Dog? Ah, oh. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, just so you don't think that I'm picking on our co-host here, Dana Colton, I'm not talking about Dana, our Dana. I'm talking about the name of an airline, uh, a Dana Air McDonnell Douglas MD83 registration five November Sierra Romeo India. 
performing Flight 363 from Abuja to Port Harcourt in Nigeria with 44 passengers and six crew, landed on Port Harcourt's runway 21 in poor weather conditions at about 1910 local, overran the end of the runway, went through the localizer antenna, and came to a stop on soft ground about 405 meters, or 1,330 feet, past the end of the runway. The aircraft was evacuated, no injuries are being reported, and the aircraft sustained substantial damage. Uh, Nigeria's airport authority reported that Flight 363 overshot the runway, probably because of heavy rain accompanied by strong winds and storm. And uh, the airline reported that the aircraft skidded off the runway as a result of very stormy weather and severe winds. Uh, that's kind of a repeat of the previous paragraph. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm looking at the weather. It doesn't, I mean, they do say that there are thunder showers and a thunderstorm reported uh, around the time frame of the incident. But the winds, at least the reported winds on the METAR, uh, don't look that bad. They're just saying 240 at 13, 230 at 7, and it's a 221 uh, runway 21. So it's not like they were. Uh, extreme crosswinds or anything odd, but perhaps the heavy rain made it so that they couldn't see very much. And I'm gathering or guessing that the runway is probably not grooved. So that's exactly what I was thinking, and that's what I was going to bring up: is it was a runway grooved, and more than likely not, and uh, probably or may have been a spoil issue. Yeah, we, possibly. We know that if mm-hmm. the spoilers don't come up, it doesn't tend to destroy the lift. So the 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 aircraft will have a tendency of hydroplaning, and that certainly sounds like what what's happened here. We don't know obviously yet, but yeah. Uh, now it looks like they lead. looks like they did eventually come up though, Dana. One of the pictures in the article is showing the spoiler panels deployed. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I see that. But, but maybe they didn't come up right away in the initial right. portion of the uh, of the landing. Good point. Um, but uh, looking at the photograph uh, of the aircraft line, there, if you look back at the runway, there is a narrow channel of reflection on the middle of the runway, and the outside portions of it look—they look like they're covered in something, whether it's water or mud or what. Yeah. I don't know, but it doesn't. It looks like there's only a narrow portion of the runway that looks ordinary, looks mm-hmm. normal. So I don't know what was wrong uh, with the surface of the run. If if that might be just the way that photograph's taken, I don't know. I I, I, I agree with you. It does look odd because it's almost like the opposite of what you'd expect to see. You'd expect to see all the dark stuff in the middle, yeah, where the 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 tire rubber deposits and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, looks odd. And and going back to your comment, Jeff, about the spoilers. If you take a good look, Mm -hmm. it looks almost like. Oh. I don't know. It's it's hard it's hard to tell whether it's just the outbound outboard spoilers may because if you look at the inboard Oh yeah, it doesn't look like the uh inboard the ground inboard, spoilers. So it, they may have just it may have been a non spoiler deploy and all they did was reach and grab the spoilers and didn't reach up back and up. Yeah. So all they did was bring in bring the flight spoilers out. Mm. That's what it kind of looks like yeah, to me. Yeah, you're right. Good point. Good catch. Perhaps they didn't have the auto spoiler system armed. Correct. Hmm. So, we, you know, we can always be Monday morning quarterbacks. I'm just, you know, yeah. stating what 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 I think would be the cause here. Yeah. Now, I used to fly under there regularly. Hmm. So that was an airfield we treated with a great amount of respect. 
because of the problems uh, associated with it uh, and the infrastructure or lack of around it. So it was a captain's only landing, and we only ever operated there in daylight hours. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Does it say? I, I didn't scroll all the way, but it's how just, long is that runway? I don't know. Uh, eight, no, nearly 9,000, 8,800, 8, hmm. somewhere on that. Yeah, so you, if it's if it's covered if it's rain covered non grooved, it's slippy as nice ice skating. Oh, right. I'm wrong. It's nine thousand eight hundred. Oh, okay, so it's almost ten thousand. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And it's pretty close to sea level. Perhaps they didn't touch down. You know touch where they up. should have. Maybe they, you know, touched down further down. Whatever. Um, it's a sad picture. That first one in the uh, article, showing that little mad dog, out in the middle of nowhere. And it yeah, probably, he's got a long way off the end, didn't he? He must, he, yeah. he must have been traveling still when he ran off the end because normally, you know, unless you go in a fair lake, you pull up quite quickly in, in that grass and mud and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but look at how tough that mad dog is. It's still in one piece. <laughs> you know what, though? I think that that was probably its last flight. I think it was a 27-year-old uh, mad dog uh, initially owned by Alaska Air. Oh, well. So sad. Save the Mad Dogs. We need to get that T-shirt. I keep forgetting to order that, but uh, another one. Bites maybe that would have made a difference. Another one down. Another one. Yep, another one bites the dust. And uh, finally, news item number seven. Gan- Ghanaian pilot. Is that how you pronounce Ghanaian. it? Ghanaian pilot. Ghanaian, yes. Unleashes hot gas on Nigerian thieves. <laughs> Love this. Um, <laughs> Family show, family show. Okay, a Ghanaian <laughs> pilot of Africa World Airlines unleashed hot gas to foil an armed robbery attempt by thieves in Nigeria as they attempted to burglarize the Accra-bound CRJ jet. Robbers operating with the within the perimeter fence of the uh, Murtala Mohammed International Airport in uh, Lagos. How did I do? Yeah, that's very good. On Tuesday, I had to. I had to pause for just a tiny moment there to make sure I pronounced that correctly. Tuesday evening, sought to uh, the uh, the robbers sought to break into the aircraft and steal the luggage of passengers. This brazen attack and attempt to burglarize a Ghana-bound CRJ CRJ jet was the latest attack upon an aircraft preparing for takeoff from Nigeria's biggest city. The burglars opened a cargo door of the CRJ aircraft tore up the cargo hold bag holders and tried to steal passenger bags. And I think, I don't know if it says this in the actual article, but I I, I have a feeling it, it had something to do when the airplane was actually taxiing out to the runway, uh, that they come out from the perimeter fence and, and uh, try to open up the cargo. But it doesn't say that in here. So maybe that's just my, my imagination. But, uh, uh, I've I've read a few others that uh, have mentioned that uh, it's not an isolated uh, incident. Jeff, it appears that, I mean, in, back in December uh, last year, uh, a private jet was attacked on the runway one eight right of the airport by unknown bandits. <laughs> okay. Uh, they said, well, actually, they say it was taxing to the hangar. Mm. Uh, the jet was from in from Istanbul. Um, the pilot, Captain Emma Hearing, reported that the rear of the aircraft was open while taxiing. Two weeks later, another theft report reported on the airport's runway. Uh, this involved two known Nigerian musicians, so um, uh, two a savage and whiz kid. 
uh, were on the aircraft. Um, oh, I thought they were the then, ones breaking into the airplane. <laughs> no, 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 I think they were the stars oh, okay. of Nigeria who were on the aircraft. A Challenger um, arrived at Lagos uh, in December and uh, was taxiing slowly to the hangar when the cargo compartment was burglarized. The jet had slowed to allow an Ethiopia Airlines cargo plane push back. Uh, and then in February, uh, pilot in command of Air Peace Flight uh, or an Air Peace Flight noticed his cargo hold door light showed for 15 minutes in the cockpit. Um, and uh, I think he was at the holding point of runway 18 right, waiting for the signal from the tower to take off. Uh, and he'd had his uh, cargo bay. Uh, rifled through. So it's, it sounds like it's they're having a bit of a spate of these. Mm. What is interesting, though, is that uh, the airport authorities uh, appear to be saying that uh, it's all a bit of exaggeration. Uh, the Nigerian Civil Aviation Authority poo-pooed. Poo-poo. It's all poo-poo. The airpiece report. <laughs> so, I mean, I love this reporter, um, <laughs> alleging that uh, somebody might have opened the cargo hold of its aircraft, um, and, and that it may not, and that uh, the report was dismissed as raising false alarm. That I'm not too sure whether that would be fair or not. But th this used to happen a lot, apparently, at Lagos in the 90s, and uh, the government at that point um, had a shoot-to-kill policy for mm. anyone that... Uh, came inside the perimeter of the airport. And I've already uh, told a couple of times, I think on previous shows, that I've been rolling for takeoff and had somebody uh, trot across the runway in front of me, uh, not an airport worker, just some bloke who'd come in over the perimeter. Hmm. And, of course, um, if, if people are getting access to uh, airliners that are on the taxiways, in, they could only have to go a little bit further to get to the ones that are on the parked up against the terminal or uh, on stands. Uh, and the potential is, of course, that uh, they could leave an explosive device on board. Mm. Um, that would be uh, pretty devastating. And, of course, Nigeria um, does have its own problems with uh, terrorists in the north of the country. So, uh, you know, we, we know it's it's a volatile country and uh, it just adds yet another layer uh, of concern on top of everything else that exists there. But what I really want to know is, how yes. did this guy get rid of the burglars? With, with hot, hot gas. gas. Where did that come from? That, that is the question. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that I can surmise from that uh, is that maybe the cargo fire suppression, like the, uh, you know, the Halon, uh, in the cargo compartment, uh, somehow was uh, uh, in interpreted by the journalists as hot gas. I don't know. If we cranked up the temperature in the cargo bay, uh, it would take quite a while, and it wouldn't get that hot. No. <laughs> but uh, I'm going, well, what do you reckon, Dana? Well, I reckon that they, if that's the actual photo of the aircraft, that they keep on referring it to a CRJ jet. Mm -hmm. Which is not correct. It's an ERJ oh, it's, jet. That's right. That's an Embraer, isn't it? It's an Embraer one forty-five. Uh, one thirty. One probably one thirty-five. Maybe one forty-five. Uh huh. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. It's probably the Halon gas. Okay, uh, I, I, that's would be my guess. If if they have a fire, uh, cargo fire yeah. ex- suppression system on the aircraft. Well, but, you know, the next time I'm in the cockpit, I'm going to look for that hot gas button. Um, maybe I've missed that. <laughs> I was thinking of those cars in uh, South Africa that that had those flamethrowers built into them, so to stop carjackings, and uh, you could press a button and it would shoot flame out the side of your cars in case someone was coming up to car trying to carjack you. That's cool. Uh, uh, well, hot actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's very hot. It is very hot. But apparently, um, the uh, the the carjackers just started shooting people from like 15 feet away instead of walking up to the side of the door. So <laughs> I, I don't know which would have been better, just giving up your car or, or being shot from a distance. Traffic but, jam, um, no problem. Just uh, <laughs> like burn everything around you for about 50, a 50 foot perimeter. That, yeah, that'd be the way to go. Uh, yeah, the other, yeah. The other thing I was thinking about hot gas is engine exhaust gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but really? uh, yeah. That'd be yeah. pretty hard to try to aiming at them because it's a fixed object yeah but, uh, but if they're if they're behind the engines like you're getting into the cargo then yeah perhaps you could rev the engine up yeah you could create a bit of a blow that might do uh, a little donut out there you know and, and yeah. uh, this is them. something my old man used to talk about uh back in the 70s uh admittedly he was talking about nairobi not uh, lagos but it's not exactly a new um technique to get valuables Wow. Crazy place. We can see now why it's one of your favorite places to go. (laughs) That's right. Always something new. (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for the news. Now it's time for the best part of the show. Your feedback. Captain, incoming message. All right. Let's start with number one. Uh, from Ray, how to have fun as a pilot. And he sent us, uh, that's Ray Williams from My Neighbor to the North in Alpharetta. He sent a uh, link to a YouTube video, and the title is This Crop Dusting Pilot's Turnaround is Insane. Just watch. And uh, so you'll have to watch the video yourself. Um, but uh, it's an interesting video. It looks like, is that a Pilatus uh, airplane? Do you have any idea what kind of uh, airplane that is, guys? No. It's a, it's a very small airplane with a, it looks like a Pratt uh, turboprop, uh, Pratt & Whitney. Um, uh, what's the famous? Uh, PT-6. Yeah. PT-6. And, that, uh, that's definitely the engine. Yeah. And uh, this thing is all set up for crop dusting. But the impressive thing about it is this guy comes in and lands in almost like a bowl. And then he, he kind of comes up to the top uh, the crest of this bowl on one end and f- turns the airplane around very quickly. And then this contraption comes over with a like a little hopper uh, assembly on it in a, in a bag. And it, uh, it fits into a hole in the back of this airplane and dumps the uh, insecticide or pesticide or whatever it is uh, spraying. And uh, like within just a few seconds, the thing is on its way back down the, uh, the bowl of a, a grass runway and is off to go spread its stuff. And uh, yeah, it was pretty slick, isn't yeah. it? Pretty slick. Have quite a quite a system worked out there. Looks pretty pretty amazing. I'd be wanting to get out and have a pee and a sandwich in between. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to have time for that. 
Definitely not. All right. Uh, so thank you, Ray, for that. Um, Stuart. Um, Stuart Aslett, I believe, is the Stuart that sent this one in. And uh, it says, watch the moment that ice block falls from the sky and nearly hits uh, London Street. And... Uh, street cleaner. Or street cleaner. I'm sorry. It was cut yeah, off there. The street, no problem. <laughs> um, yeah, for some reason, I don't know why, but my my headline was was cut off there. Uh, and and so there's a some pictures here in the uh, in the article, and I and I think also some video. And and in the video, they actually show it over and over again, and kind of do some stop motion. To see, you can see this big, huge chunk of ice just almost falling straight down from somewhere in the sky. And uh, I think in the article, it says that it looks like it could have been uh, about a 20 kilogram uh, chunk of ice. And uh, Liz made a good point. She said, well, um, you know, Captain Nick on the last show was talking about all that stuff in the wheel wells of his uh, Airbus. And I'm, and she's wondering, because this is not blue. You know, if it had a blue tinge to it, I might think that uh, this perhaps had something to do with the lavatory system. Although I guess m the more modern lavatory systems on airplanes now, they probably don't use the blue stuff. They just use regular clear no, water. No, we don't right? use blue juice. We just use a regular ordinary clean water. Yeah. So we start soft clean. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it came from uh, the wheel well of an Airbus three forty six hundred? Not my one, thank the Lord. Um, but it's interesting because, uh, you know, as part of the program to try and get us to stabilize our approaches uh, earlier uh, to try and reduce one problem, which was, uh, you know, uh, not landing in the right distance and possibly, uh, you know, landing on runways too short and running off the end, this kind of thing. Um, we were being told, right, you know, gear down at like 3,000 feet. Uh, which is quite a long way out, whereas most airports, you know, there's often not a lot of, uh, and certainly in the Heathrow on the two sevens, you're over fields and things when you're getting closer to the airport. So, um, you know, it, it makes you think perhaps putting the gear down later might be better. Uh, there's one airport I used to go to, uh, uh, Tokyo's uh, Narita Airport, where the government stipulated that you had to have your gear down by 14 miles if you were coming in uh, on one of the northerly runways uh, because they had had uh, an incidence of ice. Uh, I don't know what had happened. I don't know the details, but they were obviously sensitive to it. So they said you had to lower your gear by 14 miles so that if anything, if ice fell from your aircraft, it would fall over the ocean. Uh, and I remember once I got a letter quite an interesting one because it looked like it had come from the Emperor of Japan. It was written in very formal text and had a very formal stamp on it and mentioned his name. So I went, ooh, what's this all about? And it was because uh, apparently we'd infringe that 14-mile limit on one of our approaches in there. So uh, they, they take it quite seriously. On the other end of the runway, of course, it doesn't make a difference. You can't, there's no ocean there to drop it over, so you just put it down whenever. But uh, uh, the, apparently the CAA receives about 30 reports a year of ice falling. So there you go. Wow. Yeah, I guess well, I guess they're thinking is uh, the further out you are, the less likely you're going to hit anything. It's probably not going to be a populated area. 
Uh, in Narita, it was because you were over the ocean at 14 oh, miles. Okay. But I'm thinking at some airports, uh, you know, closer in, you're, you're better off lowering mm-hmm. it because uh, in, uh, you might be over fields rather than uh, over buildings. Right, and it's not going to have as much time to gather as much energy as it might if you were up higher. Exactly. But, but I think any time you get airborne from a contaminated runway, you're going to face this possibility of having um, slush and ice and snow um, uh, sprayed up into your wheel wells that can drop out later on in the flight when you've obviously lowered the gear. Mm-hmm. So I don't, know, I don't know if there's any way around that. Um, I mean, do you ever have a procedure where you leave the gear down to let um, – snow and ice fall off before you raise it no no because after all it's not actually on your gear it's usually been sprayed up and jammed itself in amongst the pipes and all the the gubbins uh, on the inside of the actual cavity where your wheel retracts into so it gets jammed up there leaving the gear down isn't going to make a difference i don't know of a way to get rid of that all i can hope is that because it usually gets pretty damn cold uh, during a long flight so it's down and like that ice would be down to like minus 20 or minus 30 it's going to take a long time to thaw so it will you know generally speaking it won't start dropping out until you've been on the ground for some time after you land mm-hmm. all right number three miles uh how many separate crews both the flight crew and support crew are involved in ultra long flights such as reaching los angeles from dubai nonstop, or sydney to dallas nonstop, or johannesburg nonstop from atlanta what is the crew cabin like aboard the airliners used how do crews and passengers pace themselves how are the planes modified to add ever more miles is dehydration in the airplane cabins and the risk of blood clots from deep vein thrombosis, etc., issues? Really issues? Okay, well, uh, if you're doing a, a really long flight, um, you're usually carrying extra flight crew. You're not usually carrying extra cabin crew uh, because they usually have a longer duty period um so you do swap over the pilots uh, and extend the operating pilots duty period by giving the guys who are going to do the takeoff and landing some uh, rest in the middle of the flight and other pilots take over and run the crews the cabin crew often need that themselves but usually they do that by uh, just reducing the number of cabin crew in that are available in the cabin uh, during a quiet time between services. So uh, there's a, usually a legal minimum you can go down to, and everyone else can uh, then go and have some rest. Um, so that's the way we extend the cabin crew. The crew rest really depends entirely on uh, the aircraft type. Some are pretty nice and sophisticated some are pretty basic uh, i remember on the 7-4 they used to have some bunks that were stuck up inside the fin uh, other aircraft have had them in the sort of space between the uh, uh, ceiling and the skin uh, the 340 we used to have what was like a kind of caravan stuck in the cargo hold that was accessed through a set of stairs um, from the main cabin Uh, And that was just like a a sort of carpet-lined cargo container, really, just full of bunks. Uh, It's usually pretty cramped, but uh, I think once you're uh, 
in and settle down, uh, it's it's usually a reasonably comfortable uh, bunk with the duvet and pillows and things, so you can usually get some sleep. Uh, unfortunately, if there's lots of people in there, there's bound to be some snoring and other um, activities that occur when people... <laughs> Uh, what the people get up to in bed, I don't know. Uh, perhaps stay away from that. Um, so that's how you do it. You you uh, let the people who are working uh, take some rest, have some sleep, and then uh, depending on how much you can uh, give them, it, you extend your duty period um, until you can complete the flight. Uh, to modify the aircraft to add more miles, well, obviously you need decent crew rest, um, but the aircraft that are... Uh, designed for really long range. Uh, usually, um, you've got obviously got to replace the weight. Um, oh, well, you've got to somehow find room for more fuel, which is more weight. So the way to do that is to limit the amount of passengers and cargo you bring on, uh, and possibly even shorten the airplane. Uh, some aircraft that are designed for really long range are uh relatively um short they don't have an extended nice long fuselage like say the 34600 uh they sometimes fit extra tanks in so there are often options to fit belly tanks still inside the aircraft there are not many aircraft that use external tanks although it has been known um and uh, you just fill everything up to the gunnels and then you know cruise as best you can to get from a to b uh, so uh, that's kind of how you get the uh, the extra range. Um, is dehydration a problem? Yeah, it is. It's a problem uh, wherever you are because uh, it doesn't matter, it really matter how uh, some companies will say, well, we moisturize the air, air coming in uh, to keep its moisture content up. The air you're taking out of the atmosphere is incredibly dry because there's no moisture in the air or very little moisture in the air up at altitude. Um, all the moisture is in the lower levels. Uh, so you will dehydrate um, because the air is dry. Uh, they do add water to the air in some aircraft, but they're finding that is a problem as well because, uh, um, you know, if you the last thing you want is condensation forming on the inside of the skin of an airplane because... Uh, then as that gets melts and drips onto the insulation, you can get mold forming. Uh, and that can be quite dangerous because mold spores uh, can be really nasty to some people. Uh, and you don't want people reacting from that kind of thing. Um, so in some respects, it's, it's good for the aircraft to keep the interior dry rather than uh, artificially moist. Um, the best advice about uh, keeping hydrated is not to drink too much uh, alcohol, that is, because we know uh, drinking too much alcohol will dehydrate you. Um, try not to sleep for too long periods. Take uh, water at regular intervals, which means waking up every now and again uh, and taking a drink of water uh, and keep yourself hydrated that way. And by doing that and by moving around the cabin and go and get yourself a drink, you will also reduce the risk of deep vein thrombosis, which usually comes from applying pressure to your limbs uh, and then not moving them for quite a while. And the the veins which um, you know, try and return that blood from your feet or your hands, so you know, usually your legs, um, when you're the seat can actually press on those and stop the blood moving well and you can get 
clots forming there. The way to get rid of that is to either exercise in your seat regularly um, or get up and move around if that's feasible. And uh, are, are they really an issue? Well, they are for some people. Uh, and those that are at a risk uh, for uh, deep vein thrombosis, it's probably recommended to wear flight socks, like the same socks you might get if you've uh, had an operation, another time when you are at risk of uh, clots forming and moving around your body to block uh, essential uh, bits of plumbing. So um, you can get these uh, and get socks that, that compress and are properly fitted uh, and those will help. But uh, the previous advice I said about hydrating, moving around is uh, probably the best thing. And also, if you do get um, the symptoms of a clot in your legs, uh, go to hospital straight away and make sure that you're checked out. Uh, you know, so um, uh, yeah, just look after yourself. All very good advice. Go ahead, Dana. The only thing I was going to um, say, I, I agree with uh, Captain Nick 100% on, except for one thing, and and that is, and I just want to clarify it, is that when you're at altitude, I agree that the the air is much drier, but it's not completely dry. I think, especially on our aircraft, I'm not, and I'm only speaking for our aircraft, the Mad Dog. Uh, we have an air cycle machine that spins the air essentially, and what that does is that's what we call an air conditioning pack. And when it spins the air, it's actually spinning the moisture out of the air. So that's why we're getting much drier, you know, 0% humidity. Uh, I think it's actually about 6% um, on average, uh, the humidity levels in most airplanes uh, yeah. using those kind of uh, ACM. Yeah, but the air you're sucking in, I mean, if you're cruising at 40,000 feet, uh, there's no moisture up there. Right. Uh, so the air you're sucking in is is very dry to start off with. It's drier than the Sahara Desert. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and, and, I'm, and I'm and I'm just thinking on the shorter flights, like what Jeff and I do. You know, we are in a very moist environment, especially in the southeast during the summertime. You know, we have a lot of hum humidity. You say you say you guys are moist. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I hope I hope we. Uh, answered miles questions regarding ultra long flights and um and and moisture and that just kind of, kind of brings me um reminds me of uh an article here a little bit further down in the feedback number 18 since we're talking about things being moist um this is actually some um <laughs> some video i don't know how we got this but it, i think it, it was a picture or video of uh Dr. Steph on one of her recent flight. No, wait a minute. That's not, uh, that's not right. Hang on. Uh, let's Could see. Be. This is from Liz. <laughs> I don't know why Liz, <laughs> you saw this, but um, a shameless woman filmed drying her knickers using the airplane's air vents. We're not kidding here. It takes all sorts for the world to go around. The passenger is just one of the 7 billion people trying to get by as a member of the human race. She has been shamed for airing her laundry in public, literally, and we don't mean this as a metaphor. She was filmed using the air vent of a plane to dry her knickers. And for those of you who are not from the UK, <laughs> her underwear, her panties. The unnamed woman was flying on a Ural Airlines from Antalya, a resort city in southern Turkey, to Moscow when she was filmed drying her smalls. 
I've never heard of a referred to that way, but I guess that's like a eensy teensy eensy teensy uh, knickers, whatever. Uh, no, no, it just refers to the small garments. Oh, okay, on. okay. So her uh, yeah. Wit- witnesses said she didn't seem embarrassed in the slightest, as she spent twenty minutes holding her underwear up to the vent. One person who saw what happened said everyone was looking with interest and confusion, but everybody remained silent, probably because they were all in shock that they can't believe that somebody was actually doing this. However, the video... Go ahead. Yeah, keep going, Chip. Okay. I was just going to say, it looks like, someone said it looks like they're not the the underwear of an adult. Um, It looks looks like they belong to a kid. uh, because I don't know, I think that so, um, could it be a mum who's uh, needs to try and dry her kids? I must admit, if if they're wet because of the reason we're all thinking, <laughs> that would not be very pleasant. No, and quite honestly, um, you know, they're <laughs> they're probably it's probably dry enough just in the air. Yeah, so just stick them out of sight; they'll dr- probably dry anyway. It's very interesting to say the least. Uh, so um, if you want to see the picture and or video of this lady airing her dirty laundry, uh, please check out this piece of feedback in the show notes if you if you dare. Uh, but uh, thank you, Liz, for for that. <laughs> All right. Uh, How about what Heish Bola Bola said? What did she say? Or he. This woman has the intellect of a dog. <laughs> <laughs> My dog's actually very clean. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure this has anything to do with intellect, but uh, well, you never know. All right. Uh, getting back on track. That was number 18. We're going to s- switch back to uh, number four. Swedish Andreas uh, sent us this piece of feedback. He says, hi there, Captain Jeff and crew. Uh, Swedish Andreas here with a short video and a comment on a long episode. First off, these Russian pilots, or well, in this case, in the year 1986, these Soviet pilots either are on the superhuman stick and rudder scale of flying and or they have no sense of self-preservation. You choose. And yes, this is no emergency landing. They are only delivering the plane to an exhibition. It's final resting place, actually. Uh, the video is very... Did you guys get a chance to look at this video? It was a... Uh, this guy could do the low flyby. Aleutian 62. Uh, it's the Aleutian um, uh, that kind of... It's a T-tail, swept wing, uh, landing, main landing gear, trucks, uh, and uh, has like four engines mounted on the tail, uh, two on each side. And uh, anyway, this oh, thing... Oh, it's a VC-10-ski. It, yeah, a VC-10-ski, exactly. And okay. this thing was, uh, I guess, being delivered to uh, a, uh, a a site on the top of a um, hill, uh, top of a hill on a 900-meter short grass airfield. So 900 meters, that's what, just shy of 3,000 feet? Um in a famous but potentially dangerous maneuver, fire trucks and ambulance crews were positioned on hand for the landing but were not needed. The jet uh, is used to commemorate the site of the fatal crash of Otto Lilienthal in uh, 1896 at the Golemberg Hill. 
And this jet was nicknamed Lady Agnes after Lilienthal's, Lilienthal's wife. It's now a museum with the fuselage divided between the Lilienthal collection and a popular wedding registry. So uh, this was actually the uh, pilots flying this airplane down, landing in a grass field uh, for the airplane to uh, be there uh, for forever as, a, as an exhibit. But uh, it's pretty amazing to see this thing come down it bounces up and it comes back down and you're thinking oh my gosh this must be a crash landing but uh no they intended to do it actually and then it dissolves into a huge cloud of smoke yeah, at the end because the reversers are on and just just kicking up dust everywhere and you just the, the whole thing just disappears <laughs> it's pretty amazing pretty I cool they they rear the nose up. I guess that's probably perhaps a little bit of aerodynamic braking, or just perhaps they just lost it for a moment. I yeah, first I wasn't sure, but then I thought maybe I was thinking the same thing as you. Maybe they were just trying to do some aero braking or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, because it comes away. They nearly bang the tail in. I'm going whoa. Yeah, I guess you know, part of the. Um, you know, if I'm the pilot landing this thing, thinking that, well, if I really bung this thing up, well, it's okay because it's this, it's a, the last flight on this airplane anyway. <laughs> so we're yeah. going to do our best to get it down in one piece. And maybe if we don't too badly, you know, muck it up, they'll be able to fix it. I don't know. Yeah. Incredible. It is incredible. Brave, brave bit of flying. Yeah. I agree. All right. And uh, moving on, Wyatt has some questions. He says, hi, Jeff and crew. I've been listening to your program for about six weeks, so please forgive me if this has already been discussed in earlier episodes. Now, I'm sorry, Wyatt. You're going to have to go back and listen to uh, starting from episode one, and it'll only take maybe, what, a couple of years to catch up with where we are now? I've got some people that have done it in three months. Which is crazy. Anyway, oh, you know what? Just for you, Wyatt, since you're new, uh, we're going to go ahead and... uh, entertain your your question actually i don't know if it has been asked or not i've just given you a bad time uh he says that he is a, a national guard black hawk pilot and he's one of those many people joining the rtps which is stands for rotor transition program and by the way we have several uh people that uh, listen to the show and i've met a few of you out there who have uh, gone through this uh program the uh, rotor transition program uh, if In case listeners aren't familiar, the RTP program was created to help fill the ranks at the regional carriers. They combined the GI Bill funding with bonuses to help get Army helicopter pilots enough time to get their ATP minimums. It's creating a vacuum in the helicopter industry as the exodus continues. Hmm. I was curious about your thoughts on these programs. How do other pilots feel about guys coming to the airlines with only 250 hours of fixed wing time? What skills of helicopter pilots do you think will transfer well, which will create problems? How do you feel about grimy helicopter pilots polluting the cockpit? Well, that's the number one issue, actually. Wouldn't you think, guys? The uh, grimy helicopter pilots polluting our cockpit? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, and their nasty eating habits. (laughs) Swearing, belching, farting. uh, Just, it's really obscene. All of that. (laughs) Yeah. No, you know what? I, I, I've flown with a couple of guys. I've gone through the program, Wyatt, and I have not noticed any difference between them and anybody else I've flown with. So, Well, that's part of the program, them. isn't it? To teach them manners. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I'm willing to bet their sick and rider skills are excellent. Yeah. 
Yeah, but when they try and uh, auto-rotate, that becomes a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah, can't do that. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, um, I, I don't think we have a problem with, with that at all. Maybe our, there are some out there that, that do, but I think that Dana and Nick and I are pretty open-minded. And, uh, you know, I think that basic flying skills probably translate well, depending on, I mean, regardless of whether you're flying a helicopter or, or an airplane or a fixed okay. wing. Yeah. Gary, it's a former helo guy. Oh, he's, then he's that maybe that changes my opinion. Then I'm sure it. Oh, does. that's a bad program. Don't. <laughs> oh, we should not be hiring these guys. <laughs> Just I know he's not listening. Gary is a great guy, great pilot, and uh, you know if he hadn't told me he was a you know helicopter guy, transition guy, I would never know. So yeah, we've we've got a bunch of guys from uh, ex Navy, ex Army, and uh, they they're actually. Um, yeah, they're probably amongst the top notch, I would say, of uh, handlers, aircraft handlers. They're usually very good. Um, once they get rid of this strange habit of trying to slow the airplane down to zero knots and <laughs> land vertically on the runway, then they're, they're fine. Yeah, the auto rotation thing does not work well in an airliner at all. Anyway, uh, either way, I appreciate your program greatly. I'm prepping for my interviews. And as a guy who spent six years ignoring airplane regulations, <laughs> this program is a great study technique to get a feel for airline regs and fixed wing culture. Your attitudes and opinions are always professional. <laughs> Not always, but mostly. Which show did he I listen know, to? Maybe he thinks he's listening to a different <laughs> podcast. Anyway, and set a proper standard for new pilots joining the industry. Well, thank you very much for the kind words, Wyatt. He says, adios from Fort Worth. Texas, and I guess he is originally from Lambertville, New Jersey. All right, so uh, hope that yeah, good luck. Yeah, transition absolutely, absolutely. The guy that I met up with in Nashville uh, a couple weeks ago, who was returning from uh, his uh, initial training at uh, a regional carrier in Dayton, and was traveling back to Birmingham. Uh, he is also another one of those who have um, made it through the uh, RTP program, and let's see. Uh, yeah, I could go on and on about that. So, uh, yeah, no problem at all. Hey, we have some audio feedback to listen to. You want to, you want to do that? You bet. All right, here we go. Hello, APG crew. This is Thomas in Asheville, North Carolina. Just listening to episode 309 and, uh, in particular, Captain Nick's, uh, plane tale fighting high demons. What an amazing, uh, story that is. And, uh, uh, thanks a lot for that, Nick. And, uh, of course, uh, part of the story was uh, taking an aircraft to its altitude limits, really, and beyond. Um, I'm curious. I'm, I'm guessing none of you have done that sort of uh, pushing the limits uh, in terms of altitude. But what is the highest altitude you've achieved in flight? Um, I guess the highest altitude above sea level. And... Um, uh, I'm guessing that uh, Captain Nick and Jeff, having been in the military, have had some uh, pretty high altitude exercises at times. And uh, Steph, I imagine you've also taken those general aviation aircraft to a decent altitude. And um, and and Dana, uh, you've flown a lot of different aircraft. So uh, have you ever noted it? Is it anything of note? Uh, I'd be curious what you could share. And on the topic of Asheville, I hope you guys come up here sometime and do a meetup. I'd love to treat you to some of our fine uh, microbrews, and uh, maybe that'll entice you. You know, I think Asheville has more breweries per capita than any other place in the United States. So, uh, you know, 
just putting that word out there to entice you, even maybe get Nick across the uh, pond uh, to visit Asheville again. Uh, thanks for everything you do and uh, blue skies. Well, thank you for taking the time, Thomas, to record some audio feedback and uh, beer. And in Asheville sounds absolutely wonderful. Got to do that for sure. Um, and I would wager to bet uh, of the three of us that are on the show today that, uh, well, even if Steph were here, uh, I don't think it would matter. I believe that Captain Nick would probably hold the honor for having flown the highest. Well, I don't know, Jeff, actually, because I haven't been that high. Um, I think probably the highest I did was a trip in the Phantom. I uh, got up to about 56,500, that's all. You got me beat by a long way. (laughs) The highest I've been. (laughs) Yeah, my highest I've been, I think, is maybe like mid-40s in the uh, T-38, or maybe not even that, maybe uh, 43. I forgot what the service ceiling was on that. Um, But, yeah, no, no higher than – and the highest I ever was in uh, the 141 was about 43,000. Yeah, so – yeah, if yeah but I don't think out of military flying, I don't think that's a particularly stunning altitude. I mean, the aircraft was probably capable of going a lot higher. It's just that we very rarely had a good excuse to go up there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you needed a full tank of gas and clean wings and uh, a good reason to want to waste it all. So and we didn't usually have that many opportunities. Yeah. What'd you say, Dana? How, how high have you been? Uh, in the mid 40s as well. Hey. No. Unofficially or officially? Uh, unofficially, I was on a on a, uh, uh, a last minute charter that one of the guys had uh, called in sick, and it was a Citation Ten went from um, Fulton County Airport out to Eugene, Oregon. So we had that up at forty five. Wow! Well, I I technically not type rating the aircraft, so I technically mm-hmm. wasn't piloting the airplane. So right. highest I've ever been is 41 when I was in, in a, um, a citation too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I was right. Nick, uh, Nick definitely has us all beat, 56,000 or whatever. That's 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 up there. So I noticed that when you're up in the, even in the low 40s, you really get a sense of the curvature of the, I know this is going to come as a surprise to those of you who believe that Earth is flat, uh, but uh, <laughs> yes. you actually do kind of start to see some curvature uh, in the on the horizon, uh, and I would imagine up at fifty something thousand feet, that's even more pronounced. Yeah, and the the sky d- takes a distinctly uh, dark uh, shade to it, so uh, you know um, it goes quite yeah quite black above you, um, dark blue black. But uh, I've, I've cruised an F-18 at 51. We didn't. We weren't going for altitude. We were just coming home for an exercise uh, in Malaysia, and there were a lot of big thunderstorms around. So rather than dodge our way through them, we just kept cruising up. But at 51, you just you just have to keep tapping the burners just to because you want didn't want to use constant burner. So you you tap the burners, get the speed up a bit, and because uh, you're struggling between going transonic and uh, your stall speed, uh, so uh, you're just trying to juggle the, the throttle. So we just cruise home for fun at that height. But uh, no, uh, and no, I didn't have a flow fly on Concorde. Thank you, Tony. I wouldn't have minded. It would have yeah. been fun. They were up around uh, fifty or sixty, weren't they? Yeah, I think first officer Mike said he he and his granddad got to uh, sixty thousand on the Concorde and TWA eighty eight T in the chat room fifty one thousand feet in a Lear forty five. 
That's brave stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, those little airplanes, they do have a, a tendency every, every now and again to uh, decompress. And you have to be damn quick with an oxygen mask to stop from dying when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Pain, look at Payne Stewart. That's exactly, exactly. what happened. Yeah. Oh, there have yeah. been a number of them. Yeah. Yeah. True, true, true. All right. Uh, let's move on. Some more audio feedback. Uh, this from our friend in Wellington, New Zealand, Glenn. Hi, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, and soon to be Captain Dana. Hello, and my fellow APG syndrome sufferers. It's Glenn Towler here from New Zealand with some feedback. Uh, I'm not anti-Russian. I just seem to find that they do seem to produce a lot of um, good material that we can use to say how crazy they are. And, of course, in the news again this week, of course, there was an Antonov crash where the uh, pilot decided not to, to do it out anti-icing, apparently, allegedly. And the plane crashed because of ice all over the sensors, apparently. So, yeah, they never seem to change the Russian. Um, yeah, so also, of course, Oshkosh is coming up. Uh, I'm flying over to Atlanta on the 14th of July. So if I'd like to have a meet-up before I um, jet off to, Osh to Oshkosh itself, that'd be awesome. So you say the 15th or 16th of July would be awesome. So maybe we can make something happen, hopefully. A few, I know a few people in Atlanta now. Uh, that'd be awesome. Uh, and also on the 26th of July, about 10 o'clock in the morning, like to a one at the Brown Arch again, like we did last year. That's pretty awesome. I know quite a few people turned up. and So, you know, like an APG airline, yeah, airplane geeks sort of meetup. I'll publicize it around on Facebook and Twitter and um, maybe try and get in the Slack room. I haven't been in the Slack room for a long time, so I must do that more. Uh, that's it, really. Um, you know, keep up the good work, of course, and... Uh, Join the podcast and uh, uh, blue skies and tailwinds. Oh, and talons, Douglas. <laughs> Glenn out. Thank you for nice. the talons, Douglas. Yep. Uh, uh, thank you, Glenn, for that. Um, yeah, Glenn's the one that usually sends us links about the, the crazy things that the Russians do. So we, we, I was accusing him of being anti-Russian. <laughs> I think it might be. Just about time for this week's installment of Plain Tales. What do you guys think? Let's do it. Let's Brilliant. Do it. All right. Brilliant. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. The Vengeance of Pinamond. The movie is the Glenn Miller story, and it's one of my favourites. But the moment it depicts is pure Hollywood, as the motor of a V1 flying bomb cuts out during a war concert in London. 
In the eerie silence as the bomb falls, the audience takes cover, but the band plays on, only to have the bomb explode at the perfect moment to punctuate the score. However, in the real world, the terror that these weapons wreaked upon the brave people of London during the final months of the Second World War was only too real. The V1 has history with my family, since the large oak door to my family home was made from the remnants of a Kentish barn from my grandfather's farm that was blown up by a flying bomb during the war. It was as early as 1940 that the Nazi forces projected the need for a new generation of weapon to use against their enemies. They were to be called the Wunderwaffen, the super weapons or wonder weapons of Nazi Germany. The proposal came about as a counter to the relative failure of the Baedeker raids, the blitz that was conducted against the major cities of England. The effectiveness of British defences, particularly the RAF's night fighter capability, were causing unacceptable losses for little material gain, so new weapons were needed and Pienemund, on the edge of the Baltic Sea, was chosen as the location for a secret base, the Pienemund Army Research Centre. Back in 1936, the Aviation Ministry paid 750,000 Reichmarks to the town of Vulgast for the whole northern peninsula of the Baltic island of Eustom. An airfield and research centre were built and, over time, some of the most brilliant minds in Germany were sent there to work for the Nazi war machine. The technological leaps that the scientists of Pienemann made would stun the world, and by the end of the war they were well on their way to developing an intercontinental ballistic missile for use against the United States of America. Vergeltenschwaff Ein, in English, Vengeance One, or more simply the V-1, was one of the first weapons to come from Pienemund. It was an early form of cruise missile and designed for the terror bombing of London. The Argus Motoran Company had experience in developing remote-controlled surveillance aircraft, and by the beginning of the war they had a proposal for a remote aircraft that could carry a 1,000 kilogram, that's 2,200 pound payload, a distance of 500 kilometers, 310 miles. A meeting with Ernst Udet, the Luftwaffe Director General of Equipment, was not successful since the remote control system was seen as a major design flaw, but the company continued to develop the project as a manned aircraft. The technical director of Heinkel assisted in the design and the prototype production, and from their endeavours came the Feisler FI-103. The aircraft had a simple design, a welded sheet steel ogival-shaped fuselage with short straight wings made from plywood. It was just over 8 metres, 27 feet long, and weighed a little over 2 metric tonnes, that's around 4,700 pounds. The wingspan was around 5.5 metres, 17 feet, however it could carry a warhead of 850 kilograms, which is nearly 2,000 pounds. Its range, though, was quite limited, just 250 kilometres, 160 miles. However, it could cruise at 400 miles an hour, flying between two and 3,000 feet. What made the machine all the more remarkable was the power plant, a pulse jet. 
Mounted in a pod on top of the tail, the engine, which used a resonant combustion, was first conceived in 1864 with both a Russian and a Swede claiming to have invented the concept. What made this type of engine attractive for the creators of the V1 was its simplicity, low cost, excellent thrust-to-weight ratio, and the fact that it could be run on almost anything that would burn, such as sawdust or coal powder. In practice, the V1 used low-grade petrol. The principle of the pulse jet is so simple, it's one of the few that can be easily described without the aid of a pitcher. Air is drawn into the intake and through simple one-way valves. It's then mixed with an aerosol of petrol that is ignited by a simple automotive spark plug. The burning fuel expands and because the increasing pressure closes the one-way valves, the only way out is through the exhaust, thereby providing thrust. The V1's Argus engine attained a stable resonance frequency of 43 cycles per second, which gave it the distinctive and very loud buzzing sound. It was this noise that led to the V1 to be called the buzz bomb, or doodlebug, after the noisy flying characteristics of beetles, such as the European cockchafer. Other than the flapping shutter valves in the intake, the engine had no moving parts and could be run while stationary. It was started by using compressed air to induce airflow and acetylene as fuel. Once it reached its operating temperature, the engine became self-sustaining and the external hose connectors could be removed. Two versions of the FI-103 were developed, one guided by a pilot, the R version, and one that was to become the V1, which was fitted with a rudimentary autopilot. The R version, codenamed Rickenberg, had several operational versions, all of which were basically suicide bombs. During the development of the piloted versions, test pilots were dying just trying to land the aircraft and Hannah Reach was asked to make some flights to establish the cause. I talked about this Nazi test pilot in an earlier plane tale from APG 217, the woman who flew the V-1. She discovered that the Reichenberg had a remarkably high stall speed and the previous pilots, without high-speed flight experience, had tried to approach and land too slowly. The Reichenbergs were launched from the air, either by towing them up or mounting them piggyback fashion on a mother aircraft such as the jet-powered Arado AR-234 jet bomber, but with the success of the V-1, the manned versions never went into full production. The V-1, however, was launched from a steam-powered ramp known as a Dampfersuger. Later versions used a rocket system powered by hydrogen peroxide and potassium permanganate. The V-1's guidance system was a crude autopilot which regulated the aircraft's altitude and speed. It was first designed to be used as a precision radio-controlled weapon launched and guided by a bomber, but the Nazi government decided instead to use it as an area weapon against London. A weighted pendulum system provided fore and aft attitude control, with fluctuations damped by a stabilizing gyro compass tied to a magnetic compass. The power for the gyroscope and the flight controls came from a pair of large compressed air tanks charged to 150 atmospheres. 
the missile may do with just elevators and a rudder for control. On the nose of the V-1 was her small propeller, which turned a counter that had been preset before launch, taking into account the distance and the wind conditions between the launch position and the target, London. Every 30 revolutions of the propeller counted down one digit until it reached zero. This armed the warhead and detonated two explosive bolts. The first sprung spoilers on the wings and the elevator into the airflow, whilst the second jammed the elevator link and cut power to the rudder, fixing it neutral. The result was to put the V1 into a steep dive. Initially, it had an accuracy that put it within a 19-mile diameter circle, but with improvements, this was reduced to just 7 miles. Many thought that it was the motor cutting out that caused the V1 to come down, but the bomb was designed to enter a power dive with the pulse jet still running. The motor cutout, caused by fuel starvation in the dive, gave warning of the impending explosion and allowed people time to take cover. In the mind of its Nazi creators, this was far from ideal and was soon fixed so that by the end of the V1's reign of terror, they were arriving almost unannounced. On a Friday in July 1944, a V1 bomb exploded in front of the clock tower in Lewisham High Street in the middle of a bustling market. The market stalls lined up outside Marks and Spencers, Woolworths and Sainsbury's caught the full force of the blast which came without warning. The bomb had detonated on the roof of a bomb shelter which collapsed. Shops were demolished on both sides of the street and casualties were found in the basement cafe of Woolworths and even on passing buses. The effect of the bomb was strong, damaging property for 600 yards. Dead and injured lay everywhere. The most seriously injured were taken to the nearby Lewisham Hospital, which itself had been hit a few days before, with 70 injured and three killed. A month before this, a V-1 bomb hit the Guards' Chapel on Birdcage Walk, not far from Buckingham Palace. It was a Sunday, and a military and civilian congregation had gathered at the Guards' Chapel for morning worship. The choir had just started to sing the Eucharist when the engine of a V-1 cut out overhead and it nosedived onto the chapel roof. Tons of rubble fell onto the congregation and as the clouds of dust subsided, first aid teams and heavy rescue crews arrived to find a scene of utter devastation. At first the debris appeared impenetrable the smashed remains of walls and the collapsed roof had trapped dozens. The doors to the chapel were blocked. The only access point for the rescue teams lay behind the altar. Doctors and nurses had to scramble in between the concrete walls to administer morphine and first aid. Several rescuers later recalled that the silver altar cross had been untouched by the blast and candles on the altar continued to burn. 121 soldiers and civilians were killed and 141 others were seriously injured. The death toll included the officiating chaplain, several senior British Army officers and a US Army colonel. 
Countermeasures were taken to defeat the threat in layers of defense. One was a line of advanced radar-laid anti-aircraft guns, but the V-1 was a small target. However, by the end, the gun belt was accounting for over 50% of the attacks. Barrage balloons were flown, but the Germans fitted cable cutters to the V-1's wings and fewer than 300 were ultimately brought down. Only the fastest fighters stood a chance of catching the jet-powered flying bombs, and attacking them was a risky business, since the fighter stood a good chance of being brought down by the explosion, should they succeed in hitting one. When Commander Roly Beaumont described an attack, he fired a long burst and was left inside a huge fireball of black smoke, flames and twisted steel. His tempest was rocking and bucking in the heart of the blast, and he was thrown violently into the side of the cockpit. When he finally shot through into the light, he saw that his uniform was smoking as flames had licked through into the cockpit and singed his clothes, but luckily he was unhurt. The best fighters to use were the Tempest, modified Thunderbolts, P-51 Mustangs, Griffin-powered Spitfires and the wonderful wooden Mosquito. In addition, radar-equipped Wellington bombers were used as airborne early warning aircraft. Aware of the dangers of trying to shoot the V-1s down, some pilots chose to use the turbulence from their wingtips to topple the autopilot within the flying bomb, whereupon it would spiral into the ground. Even German intelligence was fed misleading target information through double agents in the hope that they would adjust their aiming data and cause the bombs to fall short of the city. As a result, a great number of V1s failed to reach London. Had the correct range data been applied, the casualties might have risen by 50% or more. Because of its limited range, the V-1 had to be launched from near the North French coast, and the beginning of the end for the weapon came after Allied troops invaded mainland Europe and overran the launch sites. As the Germans retreated, they chose other targets, such as Antwerp in Belgium. In addition, Allied bombers attacked launch ramps as soon as they were discovered, and the last V-1 to fall on England was on the 29th of March 1945. Over 9,000 of these indiscriminate terror weapons were fired at London over a 10-month period and 2,419 reached their target, causing almost 23,000 casualties with over a million buildings damaged or destroyed. At their peak, there were more than 100 launches per day Although many were destroyed or failed en route, the weapon did enormous damage to the city. However, impressed with the concept, the United States reverse-engineered the V-1 and Republic Ford built a version known as the JB-2 Loon. They planned to employ the Loon against Japan during the expected invasion Operation Downfall but the Japanese surrender obviated the need for its use. When I saw one, in bright yellow and sporting USAF markings at the Udvahezi Air and Space Museum at Dallas, I have to say it sent shivers down my back. Well, something that sends shivers 
Well, goosebumps more like it. Uh, listening to every week's installment of Plain Tales, uh, another fantastic job, Captain Nick. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I must admit that uh, idea came from when I saw that doodlebug. I was intrigued. I'd obviously seen them before, uh, ones that have been uh, put in museums uh, since the war, uh, but always uh, uh, Luftwaffe, or in fact, they were, uh, I, I'm not quite sure, I think they were artillery pieces. They were considered, so they were probably fired by the army. But um, by the by, uh, when I saw one in USAF markings, I went, what the <laughs> hell is this? Uh, and uh, and that kind of led me to go and look it up and try and work out what was happening. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was an amazing story. Uh, and that bit about the door from my old house, uh, it's very a beautifully made door. My grandfather, apart from being a farmer, hop farmer, um, he uh, was a, a good carpenter, and he uh, made this door, and it went together with, uh, in a very traditional method, with just pegs and no nails. Uh, probably still there now. Unfortunately, the house has been sold, but uh, hmm. I wonder if the owners know the story. Hop farmer. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I know. Love it would hops. have been great to have been able to have some beer made from his hops. Yeah, but, wouldn't uh, it? Vintage hops. I didn't realize uh, that that they had reversed engineered that uh, that rocket. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah you guys and, are going to use it against the Japanese. Didn't realize it. And the funny part is, I thought that that was the original version at the at the uh, museum. So, all right, yeah, interesting, I, very interesting story. Hadn't realized that myself. You always learn something new on the show. That's for sure. Yes, sir. Or many of us do, anyway. All right, moving on to the feedback folder number eight. Liz sent this in. The transport minister, Canadian transport minister, orders officials to explore all options for reducing pilot laser incidents. Transport minister Mark Garneau has instructed his officials. Okay, that's a, just a repeat of the headline there. Let me move on here to the next paragraph. A federal official says that those options include banning certain types of lasers outright. The number of laser incidents have actually dropped by 25% since Garneau initiated a public education campaign two years ago. There were 379 reported incidents of lasers aimed at planes last year, down from 590 in 2015 and 527 in 2016. But Garneau says that that's not good enough. Here's a quote from him. This is not only reckless, it's criminal, and it is absolutely essential that we bring those numbers down because one is too many. There's no question about it. And then it goes on to talk about uh, the uh, the uh, risks uh, of lasers pointed in a, to the cockpit of an aircraft, uh, usually during takeoff or landing, the two most critical phases of flight, and the fact that that can distract, disorient, or even temporarily blind a pilot. So, well, yeah, well, I'm on his side there. Yeah. Yeah, the sooner the better. I have not, uh, I know that you have, Nick, experienced this uh, phenomenon. Um, yeah, yeah, a couple of attacks, not as many as uh, Al, I think. It's, I think they've, they've got a, a different class of, uh, of laser user <laughs> where he used to fly from. Really? Just a <laughs> More of a sport where Al was flying, I guess, huh? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, certainly they're a nightmare. 
How about you, Dana? Have you ever been lasered? One time. Yeah. And it was green. Yeah, that's the worst kind, they say. Yeah, it was a, we had it, uh, a quick flash. It, it really didn't, uh, wasn't really able to focus into the flight tech very long. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a very, very quick flash and it was definitely green. Could see the green in it. So um didn't affect either one of us. Obviously, did the appropriate paperwork. I don't do a lot of, well, the only flying that I do mo- uh, at all during night is the, the early morning hours. And I guess most of the people with lasers are fast asleep. Uh, but uh, I don't fly that much late at night. So perhaps that's why I've never had the experience. I hope never to have the experience. But I'm glad to see that uh, some someone, some country is doing something about it. Uh, yeah, definitely. Larry uh, wrote to us, and uh, we were, you know, we were talking about last episode the uh, guy that broke through the uh, fence at LAX, ran to a Southwest 737, grabbed a fire extinguisher in the wheel well, and uh, the alarm went off and all that kind of stuff. And we were, we were kind of scratching our heads about that. And he sent us a picture of something, uh, the APU fire control uh, system and panel on the inside of a 737 uh, wheel well. And as we had um, guessed that maybe that was what this person was actually grabbing, not not an actual fire extinguisher, but some kind of a fire extinguishing handle. And in this case, the APU fire control handle. Uh, and he said, I... Uh, I'll bet that this uh, does or makes some kind of an indication in the cockpit if somebody yanks on this thing. I'm not sure if it does that, or not. That really looks like something that came out of a steam engine. <laughs> well, okay. It's a Boeing, right? <laughs> well, I rest my case. Okay. I mean, I'm just trying, trying to help you out there, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> You're very kind. You're Thanks. welcome. Oh, here um, we go. So then looks like, Nick, you uh, responded to uh, Larry Geezer uh, and uh, sent some images of your own. And, but this doesn't look like a, a 737 to me. No, no, that was just the equivalent of a, an Airbus. And it's a, it's a little neat guarded, uh, red guarded button. Uh, so okay. it's nice to see the two beside each other, actually. <laughs> Well, Boeing's been making airplanes for a very, very long time. So, yeah, out of yeah. cast iron, by the looks of it, <laughs> they, they are yeah. they are rugged. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks, Larry. Good for thing that. We, didn't, we didn't send the picture of the Mad Dog. Yeah, that's control true. panel. Then really, oh, I'd love to see yeah, that. It really yeah. looks steampunk. <laughs> you want to see that? I'll make sure I send a picture. Of that. Okay, do that. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, may, maybe when I think about it, I, I, I'll take a picture of the inside of the main wheel well, and you can see all the uh, the cables and the pulleys, and the you just look at it and go, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't believe that this actually works." Wait uh, a minute, are you suggesting that you're going to do a walk around? I do walk arounds all the time, man. Usually, when it's not my leg, when it's the other uh, pilot's leg, I'll do a walk around. Well, okay, so summertime's approaching, so you do walk-arounds again. No, I've been doing them in the wintertime, too. <laughs> you know, Dana's soon going to be a captain. I'll laugh my socks off if he doesn't do every walk-around. Yeah, you better. Yep. I, I will be doing my walk I love doing my walk-arounds. You know, some yep. airlines, that that's actually the, the policy, that the captain must do the walk-around. Um, oh, thank you. You know, the guys that never get out, you know, decide never to do a walk-around, um, 
they don't know what the outside of the aircraft looks like and certainly you know lose familiarity with mm -hmm. with the uh, different parts of the aircraft and so that's part of the oral exam in ACME is you have to know on the uh, exterior of the aircraft what different things do and what you need to be looking for. So I, I would say that it would just be smart to to keep current that way. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't I don't get guys that never never do that. I yeah. They, during their uh, exam uh, oral examination, they'll go um, airplane, uh, airplane, airplane, wheel, airplane. <laughs> exactly well what else are you looking for come on i mean counting the wings counting the engines yeah make sure all the big pieces are there no no yep. huge leaks <laughs> no make sure all the fluids on the inside yeah exactly pretty much all right uh number 10 ralph uh, he said, just two questions this time, smiley face. <laughs> Don't want to overwhelm you guys. Hey, hey, no mm -hmm. need to get snarky, Ralph. Now, I'm if you remember, Ralph Walker sent in uh, some feedback a little while ago, and yeah, he had like, a whole show like 100 questions it. on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, maybe not 100. It just seemed that way. <laughs> and so I said something about the fact that, you know, if you're new to this program and you're sending in feedback, please don't send more than like one or two questions in your in your feedback, because that just makes it more fair for everyone else to, to get to their uh, feedback. So. Looks like Ralph took it to heart, even though he's a little snarky, but we like snarkiness, Ralph. Thank you. Um, he said, number one, do you carry your passport with you at all times just in case of a change of plans? Picking up a plane in Mexico, for instance? Yes. Yeah. Well, we are required to. And even though that uh, Dana and I are in domestic categories, technically, even though we'll fly to the Caribbean and uh, Mexico and Canada... Um, but even if we had planned to fly a trip only within the domestic United States, we are required as ACME pilots to always have in our presence, uh, in possession, a, a passport. So we should always have our passport with us every time we leave for a trip. And uh, what percentage of thrust do you use? 50%? 90%? Question also applies to the old curmudgeon, A330 versus A340. And uh, let's see, what percentage of thrust do you use? I use about 53 and 53.8% usually. To do what, taxi? <laughs> I'm, just <kidding>. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, we don't really, you know, when we use a reduced thrust uh, power takeoff, or th that's, that's a contradiction, isn't it? Thrust power. When we do reduced thrust or reduced... Um, exhaust pressure ratio, exhaust, uh, reduced EPR kind of takeoffs, uh, it's not expressed in a percentage of thrust for us. Um, it is um, measured in different units. Uh, even if you're using, uh, if your engine is one of those that doesn't have an exhaust pressure ratio gauge and are using um, compressor speed settings or RPM settings, again, it doesn't roughly equate to uh percentage of thrust coming out of the engine. Uh, so I'm not really sure what percentage of thrust that we, you know, what that would equate to. Like if we used a standard, uh, for for instance, Dana and I, uh, a lot of times we'll be able to use a, uh, what we call a flex 50 or an EPR 50 um, setting, and it's an assumed temperature. So uh, it may be 
let's say 65 degrees Fahrenheit outside, or let's say, or let's make it 68, makes it easy, 20 degrees Celsius. Uh, but instead of using the power settings for 20 degrees Celsius, we'll use the power settings for 50 degrees Celsius, which I think most people would agree is much, much warmer. And what that does is it, it sets up the engine to a lower power setting. And so in effect, we're making a reduced thrust uh, takeoff using reduced power, which ends up um, making the engine... Uh, last longer at it, 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 uh, longer between overhauls and uh, you know wear and tear on the engine that kind of thing and uh, also I've heard and I don't know if this is true or not that uh, the per, the uh, the chance or likelihood of an engine failure on takeoff goes down dramatically if you're not using the full rated thrust of the engine uh, for your takeoff but I don't know if that's true or not but uh, that sounds like it may, you know, it sounds like it'd be true. Yeah, we only use uh, full power, i.e. toga, um, for an occasional takeoff and obviously an occasional go around. Um, and we're only we're limited to uh, five minutes um, in a non-emergency situation uh, because you know the engine's up there at a very high temperature, producing a lot of thrust, and you don't want to cause so much wear that you end up with a failure. Um, if you're in an emergency, you can increase that to 10 minutes. And I always think, well, that's a bit of a laugh because if I'm in, in an emergency and I need it, I'll use yeah. it as long as I damn There's well no want limitation. to until the damn thing blows up <laughs> if I have to. Yeah. Uh, exactly right. So that's always a bit of a laugh. Um, and we, uh, out of interest, not only flex our takeoffs uh, in the same way that uh, Jeff described, uh, we derate our so we use a low, a lower or a derated climb thrust uh, for exactly the same reason as to prolong uh, the engine life. Anything to add, Dana? No. Uh, perfect. Pretty much covered it. Yeah, Dana and I fly yeah, the same jet, it. so you know so, we're probably going to say the same thing. <laughs> no sense droning on about the same thing. Yeah, true. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, again, you could probably use some kind of a formula to come up with a rough estimate of the, you know, what percentage of the thrust you're actually using based on your uh, exhaust pressure ratio setting or your N1 setting, but I just don't know what it is. Uh, I'd just be guessing. Maybe 75-80% of the actual thrust. What do you guys think? Uh, well, it'd be a, it would be a wild guess, yeah. but I would say about the right 80%, not, yeah, 80% yeah. probably. Well, you know, couldn't it, you say, though, on, on the N1 gauge, because there's a range, you know, we, we talk about uh, 88, 92, and 95. Mm -hmm. um, and 95 is representative of maximum power applied, not firewall power, but max power. So couldn't you say... In theory, yeah, I, that, I, you could roughly estimate it because uh, the only reason why I hesitate is because I, I think what's the, like the maximum N ones? They're over one hundred percent, so it's not an exact exactly a one hundred percent range. I mean, like the the highest. Yeah, I mean, if you if you firewall it, I think what do you get? One hundred and five or somewhere yeah, around there. Something between one hundred uh, you know, and one hundred and five. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's that's close. That, yeah. It's it's a close representation. So if you really wanted to put a, a percentage, you know, flex thrust is roughly eighty eight percent on the Mad Dog. Okay. A normal power thrust is roughly ninety two percent 
rough. I mean, we're talking N1, so mm-hmm. N1 being the scale from zero to 100. Yeah. In, in a sense, so in max power, which is just a normal, you know, no D rate of any sorts, I was right at 95%, so or 95 and one, so you could probably put a percentage and be fairly close, yeah. or fairly accurate with that. That's a plus or minus five degrees, probably. You know, yeah, it'd be close. Yeah, good point. Good point. Thanks, Dana. All right, and That's thank the you. First good point I've had all good all day. Yeah. Oh man, you're making great points, man. Uh, Ralph, thank you very much for your questions. Oh, he he ends with I have terminal APG syndrome, and I'm proud of it. Now we haven't played that yet for this show. Perhaps we should and. Uh, that is if I can find it. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of APG syndrome. No pills gonna kill my ear. I got a bad case of APG syndrome. All right, and uh, let's continue on. Thank you, Ralph, for only sending in two <laughs> questions this week. We do appreciate it, Liz. That Liz again uh, sent in, um, actually, I think what I want to do here is play some feedback from Robert first, and then we'll get to Liz's feedback, which kind of piggybacks a little bit on it. So we have some audio feedback from Robert. Take it away, sir. Actually, he sent this in as video, which is really cool. And I invite you to look at his uh, homemade video uh, that he uh, that he recorded uh, in the show notes. It'll, the link that will be there. But I went ahead and made an audio version of it so we can all listen to it together. Hey, good morning. APG crew here from uh, Boulder, Colorado, the uh, Courtyard Marriott here. I'm working out here this week, and for a Georgia boy, these are quite some unique views. We don't get uh, snow and uh, mountain views quite like this, but it is negative one Fahrenheit, so I am going back inside for the rest of this video. Uh, This is also take two. the alarm clock uh, <laughs> interrupted the other one. Um, I was listening to APG uh, 311, and there was some discussion, as you guys uh, always do, pretty much on every uh, uh, podcast, about the differences between um, automation in the cockpit and just plain old flying. And this um, reminded me of when I fly my Microsoft Flight Simulator that I've done for probably 10, 15 years. And maybe it's a combination of laziness or just habit or whatever, but I always typically turn on the automated um, air traffic control that guides me to a um, IFR landing. You know, I plug in the, um, the radio signal for the, um, uh, the landing uh, runway that it gives me. Uh, because I find on uh, Flight Simulator that is much, much easier for me to actually land. Um, I find that if I try to do a visual approach, it doesn't end up being as nice as, you know, um, doing the glide slope and everything. So I was seeing if you guys had some tips for someone who rarely flies at all, um, you know, just uh, as a novice, you know, hobbyist on uh, something like Microsoft Flight Simulator. Uh, this also, you know, Jeff, when you were flying uh, through Atlanta recently and um, the, the new term there, RVR, you know, uh, runway visual range, that was actually a new term to me. And so all these terms and, and things kind of uh, had a, a reminder there that I thought I would uh, ask the question when you guys had, um, you know, when you're going through 
flight training 101, 102, and learning visual uh, approaches, um, you know, something that I could uh, consider, um, you know, for trying to uh, learn maybe the other way and not landing, you know, with IFR like that. So uh, thanks for all the, um, the podcasts and everything. You guys are doing great. Uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks. Thank you, Robert. Uh, great questions. Um, the, I guess the main thing I got from that was, uh, okay, he's, he's flying a flight on his flight simulator software and normally he just connects everything and it just does it automatically. And he was thinking about trying to fly more visual approaches and uh, do we have any tips or advice for him on how to do that? Now, I don't have experience at all with, um, PC simulation software. So, and I, so I, I'm guessing that it's possible to use that kind of software and actually quote unquote fly the airplane using keystrokes and various key combinations and that kind of thing. But then I, I know that there's also a way that you can connect peripherals to your computer, like a joystick and even rudder pedals or a control yoke and that kind of thing. I, I would imagine that that would make it much more realistic um, to actually quote again fly the uh, the simulator. And I know Dana, didn't you say that you've done some uh, so you have experience with PC flight simulation? Yeah, I mean that's going back a, a long time. Yeah, uh, more than eight to ten years at least. Uh, going back, probably flight sim ten is mm-hmm. the last one I can remember. But it it's very realistic. Uh, I actually, uh, when I was going through uh, training and learning how to fly instruments, I used uh, the PC to help me uh, learn at least get my scan going. So okay, well then, if that is true, and and he's using it in that way, I mean, but isn't there a way you can do it without ha- any of those peripherals, and you can actually just use keys and that kind of thing? Yeah. So I guess that really isn't very realistic as far as flying. it's not very it's it's not very realistic. It's it's a way that uh, back when I was flying flight sim, it, it was used quite a bit. I would have quite literally a joystick, mm-hmm. and then I would use like F for flaps or a, a D for you know flaps extend D for retract a G for gear and um you know, I don't remember all what the keystrokes were but it was in in a lot of respects that wasn't very realistic and this it was really the beginning stages of them having a, an entire a control yoke system or a you know a system you could buy and actually fly uh, and get the feel for it so I was more of a, a of a joystick user very much like an Airbus as a matter yeah. of fact so, so let me let me say this then. Uh, let's just assume uh, that Robert uh, has has his setup set up so he has some peripheral uh, devices to uh, more better simulate actually flying a real airplane. Um, what would you say to him? Okay, I'm I'm sitting in front of my computer now, Dana. How do I? And I can see the airport ahead of me. It's visual conditions. Do you, how how do I fly this? Um, you know it's. It's hard to say that it's it's more of a uh, it's more of a function of the visuality of, of the computer, right? Uh, because there are different settings in which you can have um, your perspective to be. So, what I would do is I would be in the visual world using uh, the uh, you know a, a peripheral, using all of your your tools as if you have it set up like a flight deck. Well, I'd fly just like I was in the flight deck. I would use either an ILS or I'd use VASI or I'd use some type of instrument approach uh, because there's no way until you get close on the simulator program to really get a depth 
a, a depth a field of a depth of vision to be able to sense where you are in, in spatial orientation. Okay. So uh, unless they've come uh, very far in 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 maybe even the 3D world, if they were able to you know come up, you know they have this these goggles now that you can put on with your phone. It's almost like a 3D world that would help to 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 resolve depth issue. But even even us in the sim. We have that issue. We're trying to shoot visual approaches in the sim. You know, you have it, it's basically just like a flight simulator that anybody has at home. And your depth of, of a field of vision is very difficult, even in in a in a level C or level D simulator. Mm -hmm. So that we even fly. So basically, I, I think maybe sometimes that people listen to the show who are not pilots like like we are. Uh, have this idea that when we say we're going to fly a visual approach that we're going to do we're not going to use anything but our eyeballs and looking at the runway and flying the airplane that way but guess what we always use backup instrumentation as if we were in the clouds and couldn't see a thing we'd still dial up the ILS system to provide a backup to, to show the uh, track to the runway to show our glide path so if we have a glide slope available we're going to use that and uh, so we're not normally uh, in fact it's very unusual that we'll ever fly to an airport that doesn't have any kind of a ground-based or satellite-based approach aid for us to look at in the cockpit just to kind of double check and make sure that what we are flying uh, and what we're seeing visually uh, matches up with the instrument uh, approach underlying instrument approach. And I, I would imagine that, uh, Nick, you would agree with that as well, right? Yeah, I've got a bit of experience on uh, flight sims. And uh, yeah, uh, I think the if you want to do it completely visually, it is, it is quite feasible. But the best thing to do is to work up to it by um, looking for the visual cues uh, that you will need uh, whilst you're flying instrument approaches. So get you know the weather good and then look at the aspect of the runway look at the uh, way the uh, visual uh, slope indicators the pappies or the vases or whatever you've got on the airfield you're, you're flying on your sim uh, work if you go low look at the readings you're going to get more reds if you go high you're going to get more whites uh, and get a feel for it as if you were doing it visually and then um, you know, get yourself lined up on the glide slope and get yourself halfway down an approach, then just turn the ILS off and try manually continuing and holding that picture and doing a, a visual landing. Then back it out a bit, do it a bit more, back it out a bit, do it more. And then eventually when you get confident enough, try coming in at an angle for the runway, picking up the cues and turning on and then descending yourself down. And then eventually if you're, uh, when you're happy enough, try doing it from a circuit. You know, plenty of um, documentation on how to fly circuits. Uh, so, you know, you should be able to find something that applies to the aircraft you've got, you're simulating, and uh, just slowly build up a, a knowledge base until you feel you can do it yourself. Exactly. So, great advice uh, from both Dana and Nick, who are experienced uh, PC simulators, or at least at some point in their, in their, uh, flight experience have uh, have that experience of flying PC sims. Again, I can't say anything about it because I've never had that experience myself, but I think that's great. I, I mean, I'm thinking, uh, just do it the way we do it in the real world, too. You know, it's the same thing. Just use those things as backups, and then you can yeah. Uh, yeah. you kind of get that picture. and uh, Just to reinforce you, the fact that you've got the right visual cues to land the airplane. To make well, the in... in in reality, anybody that wants to learn or is 
is even considering uh, learning to fly other than just in the sim world, um, you don't want to develop bad habits. So even when you're doing, when you're sitting there on a flight simulator, if you're cutting corners or not flying the aircraft the way you really should, it's kind of negative training in my, in my thought process, because you got to learn the proper way to do it or fly the aircraft in order to be safe when you, when you're out there flying in the real world. So, you know, in the PC world, you know, you can hit control alt delete or reset and you're back at the end of the runway in the real world. Uh, you know, if, if you're using the application to learn how to, uh, you know, fly in the real world or eventually fly in the real world, then I would highly recommend that you, you know, take, take some advice and, and use the simulator in a, in a positive way and make sure that you fly the aircraft just as Nick and, and I have discussed. And of course we've talked about it several times on this show where airplanes have landed at the wrong runway and, Every single time that we've talked about it, uh, if the crews had been using the underlying instrument approach and referring to it as they were flying their visual approach to the runway, they would have noticed that they weren't jiving and they would have possibly noticed that the airport and runway that they were going to and they actually landed upon uh, were not the ones that they thought they were landing on and they they could have kept themselves out of trouble if they had just you know used good discipline and uh, good procedures which is a very important point even if you're flying to an airport and a lot of the general aviation airports that you'll find in a flight simulator um, even if you're flying into an airport that doesn't have a prescribed instrument approach um, all the modern aircraft, especially, <laughs> we're as, as dinosaur as it gets, but even in our aircraft, you can build an approach based on the runway and the runway heading. So it's always best to have some type of backup and use a backup, even if you don't have an instrument approach. For example, last night here coming to Wilmington, runway 17, only all it has is an RNAV approach. Well, we are not authorized to fly that RNAV approach. However, in the box, it's still there. So you load up the approach. So you have some type of guidance guiding you to the right airport, the right runway, and even to a certain extent gives you the vertical guidance as mm -hmm. well, vertical track error. So, you know, these these are things that you can that you can use in the flight simulator world to, to make yourself uh, more rounded and better practiced uh, for for the real world stuff and or flight sim world stuff. Tools, man. You got to use them. Good tools. Got to use them. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, Liz kind of um, sent in something that's uh, kind of on the same vein uh, regarding automation and manual flying skills. And uh, she found this on LinkedIn. Uh, looks like Andrew Mizzi, M-I-Z-Z-I, -Z -Z or Mitzi. I'm not sure how he pronounces that. Uh, starts off by saying, it was only a few days ago I was standing outside Hong Kong International Airport's Terminal 1 on a cold Tuesday night, shortly past 1 a.m., awaiting the arrival of a taxi to take me home. I was listening to the roar of wide-body aircraft flying past on departure to unknown destinations around the world. Those poor pilots, I thought. A late-night departure and a flight through the window of circadian low. I was happy to be firmly on the ground following a long multi-sector flight from Australia. The pressures of a modern and profitable airline operation meant higher demands on the use of automation at the expense of maintaining manual flying ability, especially when called upon late at night, and I knew what pressures those pilots would be under. 
On the cab ride home with taxi driver friend Alex, shop talk ensued. We had a conversation about where I'd been, the type of 747 operation we fly, and a common subject asked by passengers. Just how much time do pilots actually hand fly the aircraft? And that goes on to say, reports recently released claim 2017 to have been the safest year in commercial jet aviation in terms of casualties, a great achievement, but hardly indicative of true and absolute safety. Just because there were fewer deaths doesn't mean that safety wasn't being compromised. Only a few days ago, a blocked pedostatic system on a Saratov flight 703 in Antonov 148 aircraft in Russia was speculatively reported to be the cause of a crash killing all 71 on board. The alleged failure of the crew to maintain or manage the loss of airspeed and or altitude by simply following basic raw instrument data by setting known values to ensure desired aircraft performance has been the cause of several accidents in the past few years. So he goes on to talk about other crashes that uh, basically were caused by a lack of basic flying fundamentals and skills. And uh, so I'll put a link to this very well-written article uh, that just basically echoes what we have been saying for years on this show. That uh, you, you know, in, in addition to having good autopilot auto flying skills, you have to uh, have good basic manual flying skills as well. Uh, thank you, Liz, for that. Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting um, with these failures we've been talking about, how long before uh, we start using a form of uh, GPS uh, speed and altitude as a backup. At the moment, those uh, figures are normally hidden inside somewhere in the FMS. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if the next generation of aircraft have them as an alternative form of uh, airspeed and altitude mm -hmm. and properly corrected for uh, with a global model that can give you uh, actual, uh, you know, uh, the equivalent of uh, a Q&H and uh, a proper indicated uh, airspeed equivalent uh, because at the moment they don't, but uh, they give you some idea of what speed you're doing, what height you're doing, but not what you really need to fly an airplane. You know, back in the old days, yeah, back right. flying 141B Starlifters in the 80s, you know, the other well, century, we actually, we actually, <laughs> uh, it was a procedure, a policy, a procedure that we'd use all the time, and we would uh, monitor um, in our cross check the uh, the ground speed readout, which was down on the center column it wasn't even anywhere near you know our field of vision um looking at our instrument panel or through the windscreen uh, but you'd have to look down and you'd have to monitor or you'd look and monitor the ground speed and compare it with your airspeed and uh, it was right. a great way to um you know kind of see what the wind is doing and uh to kind of give you forewarning of a possible wind shear and that kind of thing and uh and so yeah. it just makes sense to use those uh if you have that that information, yeah, we should be able to see it. Yeah, and I think yeah. you're right, Captain Nick. Uh, that's probably going to be something that they're going to make more visible for us in the future. I yeah. hope. Absolutely. Angle of attack too. Please give us angle of attack oh, information. Yeah, a severe lack of. Yep. Uh, have you ever heard of this uh, young lady, uh, Jen Niffer? Yeah. Yeah. Well she uh, sent us some feedback um, sure. and you'll uh, regarding something that we've talked about in the past well she'll she'll uh, let us know what she's talking about here here you go Jen please take it away hello APG crew and community it's Jen Niffer here 
On episode 307, I sent in some feedback about airport fees. And afterwards, Nick wondered how much it would cost to uh, land his A340 at my airport. And Jeff wondered how much it would cost to de-ice his mad dog. Well, wonder no more. I am here with some of those dancers for you. Yay. Uh, Before I get into the rates, I just want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a signatory versus a non-signatory airline. Um, And I I mentioned this in in the feedback before, but just to go over it again, a signatory airline is one that has signed a lease agreement with the airport, and I think it's usually for a term of three years. Or in the case of uh, most of the cargo airlines that we work with, uh, they've agreed to a certain number of flights every week. So that's what you have to do to be a signatory airline. And it matters because signatory airlines get lower rates. So as you know, I work for an airport authority and we actually have more than one airport. Um, We have one that's primarily for passengers and another that's primarily for cargo. So when we're doing landing fees, uh, those are charged per thousand pounds max gross landing weight. So at the passenger airport, it's $3.17 per thousand pounds max gross landing weight if you're signatory, and it's $4.75 per thousand pounds max gross landing weight if you're non-signatory. At the cargo airport, it's $3.18 per thousand pounds for signatory and $4.77 per thousand pounds if you're non-sig. Now, um, Acme Red does not... Uh, fly into my airports. So Acme Red is not a signatory airline. However, uh, Acme Red has occasionally flown some charters into the cargo airport. Now, I don't know what the max gross landing weight of an A340 is. So I did a little bit of Googling. These numbers may not be exactly right. But what I came up with was uh, a max gross landing weight for an A340-600 of 584,000 pounds. So you would divide that by a thousand and multiply it by the non-sig rate of $4.77 and that would give you $2,785, let's try that again, $2,785.68 to land your A340 at the cargo airport. Now Acme, on the other hand, does have um, a signatory relationship at our passenger airport. And so I send landing fee invoices to Acme all the time. Uh, According to Acme, an MD-90 has a max gross landing weight of 142,000 pounds. At the signatory rate of $3.17, it costs $450.14 to land uh, a mad dog at my airport. Now, Jeff, when you're flying in, I usually add an extra thousand pounds because I know you're carrying all of that recording equipment with you. Uh-huh. For fun, I thought we'd look and see uh, what it would cost for Steph to land at the passenger airport in her snazzy SR-22. So once again, I went on to Google to come up with the max gross landing weight, and then I said, nah, forget it. I'm not going to bother looking it up because we don't charge landing fees to general aviation aircraft, which means Steph wins. Yay. Now, 
As far as de-icing goes, uh, we're not involved in that at all at the passenger airport. The airlines take care of their own de-icing. However, at the cargo airport, we run the FBO, so we do handle the de-icing there. Uh, we charge $15 a gallon for type 1 and $21 a gallon for type 4, and that includes the cost of applying it. Now, how much um, de-icing fluid you would use really depends a whole lot on the conditions. Um, I, we do have some mad dogs that fly out of our cargo airport, so I went and uh, did a little bit of digging through some of our invoicing, and I did come across a day where it was one of those mornings where there was just a light frost, um, and we used 46 gallons, and at a price of $15 per gallon, it's $690 to de-ice a mad dog. So there you go. Um, I went ahead and put together a blog post for my blog, Tales from the Terminal, uh, that goes a little bit more in depth about some of the fees that airlines have to pay. And I'll send you a link to that so you can share it out for anybody who's interested. As always, I love the show. You guys are great. Hope that uh, you guys come flying into my airport again sometime soon, not just so that I can send you an invoice, but so that I can say hi and, and uh, get a chance to meet up with you guys. So keep up the good work. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Sure, Jen. Sure. Yes. Say hi, then send us an invoice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, credit That's not fair that GA doesn't get billed. Yeah. yeah no. What's wrong with them? <laughs> That's <Loafers>. discriminatory. <laughs> Over two grand. Over two grand for my little A340. Come on. And you know, the uh, the de-icing that she was just talking about, that was just for type one to de-ice. If you actually put the type four for anti-icing, that uh -oh. would be probably another probably thousand, two thousand dollars. It's expensive stuff just for our little jet. Can you imagine uh, how much that must have cost to uh, de-ice and anti-ice your 34600 in Boston? Oh, I know. They were spraying that Type 1 around like it was, you know, happy juice. Uh, <laughs> the Type 4, they were a little more conservative. <laughs> but I'm not kidding. They went, I, we, they were spraying Type 1 around and they were doing the fuselage and it was just streaming over the cockpit. I mean, it was like a waterfall. Mm -hmm. So I'm going, oh, for heaven's sake, guys. I know. I know. Sometimes yeah. I, I think the same thing. I think this is just like using way more than they need to. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully the uh, the program to recoup some of that deicing fluid is going to continue to move forward Yeah, as we are discussing before. So maybe some of those costs will be recouped. Well. They'll, not for our benefit. Yeah, sure. exactly. The people <laughs> that are shooting that stuff, they're going to get the them. recoupers benefit. <laughs> Speaking of happy juice. Yeah. Yeah. I was walking around today. I saw a sign. I've always said a liquid attitude adjustment or adult beverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw a sign at a bar that said adult daycare. I thought that was quite nifty. <laughs> Adult daycare. <laughs> <laughs> just drop them off Not here. Not change the subject. I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Uh, let's see. Colonel Jeff, funny. Colonel Jeff and Chris uh, sent uh, both sent in a link to this article. And uh, I think it was Jeff that said, something about this story doesn't smell right. 
let's see. A row of passengers were removed from the plane after a man allegedly refused to stop farting. A plane was forced to land after a fight broke out over a man who allegedly refused to stop breaking wind aboard the plane. A pilot made an emergency landing after the fight broke out. And the two Dutchmen sitting next to the flatulent passenger reportedly asked the man to stop, but he refused and continued to break wind aboard the Transavia Airlines flight from Dubai to Amsterdam, Schiphol. The budget airline crew allegedly did not help the passengers after their complaints, Metro reports, leading to a fight between the men. Despite a warning from the pilot, the altercation continued and forced the airplane to be diverted to Vienna Airport, where it made an emergency landing. Police boarded the plane once it landed and removed two women and two men that the pilot reported as passengers on the rampage. The women, who are sisters uh, that were removed from the flight, are now taking the airline to court, claiming they were not involved in the altercation. And uh, she, one of the ladies, a 25-year-old law student, called the removal humiliating. We had no idea who these boys were. We just had the bad luck to be in the same row, and we didn't do anything. All I will say is that the crew were really provocative and stirred things up. All four passengers were released from police custody without being charged. However, all have been banned from flying Transavia Airlines in the future. Okay, our crew must ensure a safe flight. When passengers pose risks, they immediately intervene. Our people are trained for that. They know very well what the boundaries are. Transavia is therefore square behind the cabin crew and the pilots, the airliner said in the statement. And the captain issued uh, another statement saying, I'm the only one allowed to fart without consequence on this airplane. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah, you, can't, you can't throw me off. <laughs> wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, come on, I think people. Dr. Seth would have something to say about that. It's a normal human human bodily function. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all try not to do it in a lift, but a, a journey in a lift only takes a few seconds. I mean, if you're on a flight that's lasting a few hours, it's going to be very hard to keep it in. I mean, you can. I guess you'd have to be there. I mean, maybe this person was doing it on purpose, you know, like forcing it, you know, instead of unable to keep it from, you know, leaking. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Um. But anyway, you just have to worry about hanging the underwear up in front of the vents to dry it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) not good. I can't believe that. Okay. Uh, Yeah. All right. 13. Sean, I'm a new listener to the podcast. I started with episode 302, but have since gone back and listened to some of the older podcasts as I love listening to the show. I'm currently a student pilot and have not yet soloed, so I still have a way to go. I've been an aircraft mechanic in the U.S. Air Force Reserve or Air National Guard for the last nine years. During the week, I work for an FBO based at Dane County Regional Airport in Wisconsin. That's Madison. I spent the first five years of my life growing up on Travis Air Force Base, where my father was a flight engineer on the C-141 Starlifter. I don't know Captain Jeff's military timeline, but maybe you two flew together at some point. I briefly wanted to explain my aviation background and why I love it so much. And I was uh, flying the 141 back in ni- 1983 through 18, 85. 18. No, 19. 19. Uh, 83 sure? through 1985. <laughs> and, uh, but it was, come on, it, it was a long time ago, that's for sure. Yeah. I was in junior high school. Okay, good. Uh, me too. I was just in, in the uh, junior high school program. 
and the Air Force. <laughs> uh, let's see. He goes on. My feedback today is about my goal to become a pilot in the U.S. Air Force and eventually an airline pilot. I'm about six months from completing my bachelor's degree and then intend on applying for various open pilot slots at guard and reserve units around the country. That's a good plan, by the way. I would recommend that. I'm being, I am being presumptuous, but... I was curious about what the transition from a pilot in the Air Force to the airline pilot looks like. If you have been a C-17 pilot for 10 years, do you transition into a captain slot in the airlines? If this has been addressed before, I apologize. So just to address that in this show, uh, no, you, uh, you start off with very rare uh, cases or exceptions. You're going to start off, if you get hired out of whatever your previous background was, as a, a, a starting position, which is going to be a first off, well, it used to be a second officer, flight engineer, but now none of our airplanes have those positions. Uh, so you'll start off as a first officer in probably one of the smaller narrow body airplanes. And then you'll, as your seniority increases, then you'll be able to bid for captain at some point. I would have to say I disagree with that, Jeff. Okay. And and how would you oh. disagree? Only only part of that that I would agree with is that at mainline or, or legacy carriers, mm -hmm. it's going to be much harder to get hired into that position. But with with the regional uh, industry, they actually do have direct hire into left seat. So, oh, wow. Uh, I yeah, didn't know that. Because it, it's based on experience. And if they're having problems finding people that are qualified based on the FAA uh, limitations, uh, they can and have in the past and are actually, as far as I know right now, uh, hiring into the left seat, uh, yeah, captains off the street. Now, what what their qualifications have to be, I don't know if a C-17 would qualify them. I don't know if they have to have previous 121 time. Um, so that part of the equation, I don't know. And even at, uh, even at the legacies, because it's getting to uh, be so junior now, you know, you, you've got uh, captains at Acme that have uh, only been here since uh, January 2017, the last I saw. So mm -hmm. it's getting pretty close to being right off the street, especially now when you look at the C-Series coming on, going to L.A. and New York. Mm -hmm. You're going to have you're gonna have really junior guys going to that. Okay, well, I sit corrected then. I I'm not, not I'm not, know that. I'm not trying to correct you as, as, as I'm just saying as the industry goes forward, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a possi there is the possibility because we're going to have far few pil fewer pilots to choose from, and it currently has happened and continues probably to happen at the regional level. Okay, good. Well, I'm happy to be corrected about that. Um, let's see. He continues. If my feedback isn't already too long, I had another piece of unrelated feedback. Back in December, a C-5 landed at Dane County Regional Airport. Again, that's Madison, Wisconsin. And during its taxi, it must have made a wrong turn and got stuck on taxiway Bravo. And due to its wingspan being too massive to pass the ILS equipment for runway 21, they had to, uh, they had to, they got stuck. They had to fly in another C-5 to take all of its cargo. I assume it's because towing it fully loaded would have put too much stress on the gear. No, I don't think it's going to be too much stress on the gear. It's probably too much stress on the taxiway uh, would be my guess. Uh, let's see. Uh, I suppose it could also be related to Dane County not having a large enough tow vehicle. That's a possibility as well. Any thoughts? Any ideas on what probably happened to the commander of that flight? <laughs> he, probably, he probably had to talk to somebody, ex explain himself uh, a little bit uh, for the boo-boo and taking the wrong taxiway, I would imagine. Uh, he said, uh, Sean says, I think he would have received a good chewing out. 
I think your sense is correct, Sean. Um, so not knowing all the details, I did find um, a, a story uh, in the news regarding that incident. Uh, crews move stuck military plane from wrong runway. Of course, you know, in the journalist world, uh, runways and taxiways are all the same. There's no distinction at all. In our world, though, if we uh, take off on a taxiway or land on a taxiway, uh, they take umbrage with that. So there is a difference, a distinction for us, but not for people writing news articles. Uh, so there's a picture of the C-5 stuck. Well, I don't know if this is the one that was actually stuck, but there's a picture of a C-5 <laughs> at Dane County. Um, what do you guys think? Any? Uh, do you think that something else happened here or what? With the I think you ran out of fuel. I ran out of fuel. <laughs> yeah, I, don't I really did. So. Yeah, I think it's just that, uh, you know, they they took the wrong tax away. They couldn't get it go any further. And the reason why they had to offload everything was probably because they couldn't make a, a 180-degree turn on uh, the taxiway. And sometimes even there are some runways that a C-5 can't make a 180-degree turn on, not only because it's not wide enough, but uh, just the weight-bearing capability uh, is is exceeded uh, by that airplane. So, uh, Or, as you surmise, maybe the uh, tow towing vehicle that they have available at Dane County, uh, even the biggest one perhaps wasn't big enough to able to to be able to tow that airplane with a with the cargo on board, I'm just guessing. Yeah, and I kind of find it odd that they're finding a different a different C5 to take out the cargo. So I don't know if maybe there's not a mechanical issue. Yeah. Here with with the aircraft, and I agree with that assessment. Not only do they probably not have the right tow bar to push it, but uh, you probably don't have a big enough uh, tow vehicle, as you're saying, because mm -hmm. most of the aircraft that fly in and out of that field except for the occasional airbus or mad dog maybe um a fairly light aircraft compared to a c5 so that's would probably be a, a fair assessment but I, I imagine the reason why they flew another c5 is there was some type of mechanical issue with the aircraft quite possible and not having been there and not knowing the details we we can only guess so anyway sean because we're assuming it's the captain that made the mistake it could easily have been uh, the air traffickers that sent him down the wrong taxiway that's possible too although it's you know the bottom line is even if somebody tells you to take a taxiway that you're not allowed to use it's still going to be our fault you know yeah. <laughs> just, that's just the way it works <laughs> unfortunately um sam finally our last piece of feedback for today's show uh, writes in and I, I Sam had sent in some feedback in the past and I said hey please keep us apprised as to your progress and your on your flying journey and he sent this to us uh, I wanted to update you and the APG crew this past week I finished the paperwork on and received my FAA advanced ground instructor certificate so that deserves this hey, that's yeah. AGI. congratulations from the APG community, and I uh, wanted to also thank you for the uh, all the inspiration you have given me to go for my aviation dreams. Next up is the CFI written. I plan on taking that in a few weeks. We'll update you again soon, Sam. So thank you, Sam, for for letting us know how you're doing. And uh, that was uh, he sent this in about uh, well just a, a couple of days ago. So we'll expect to hear something from him in a couple of weeks. Can I share a bit of uh, advice for Sam? Yeah. Um, if he's going to do his uh, CF double I, which I imagine he will, 
and uh, take the written with that. What, uh, what's the difference, uh, Dana, between a CFI and a CFII for those? Okay, who are CFI is a certified flight instructor, so you can give basic instruction to both a, a private pilot and a, a commercial pilot, but you're not allowed to actually uh, teach instrument. Uh, procedures and that's uh, how to shoot uh, a, a visual approach. I mean, uh, ILSs, uh, NDBs, VORs, uh, localizer approaches, and it also includes uh, being able to operate and understand the uh, instrument flight world, instrument flight rules, IFR. Uh, and that includes flight planning, how to how to file a flight plan, how to use victory airways, how to hold over VORs. So that's what an instrument flight instructor would actually teach a uh, a student. Which, believe it or not, um, all airline pilots pretty much that's the world we completely live in, except for the occasional visual approach. So uh, we all follow the instrument flight rules. So that's what a CF double I is. That's the ability to teach that. Uh, MEI, uh, multi-engine instructor, is another uh, one of the I's. Um, so, and what's your advice for uh, him going for the CF double I? So, so the CF double I, I would, uh, I would definitely take the IGI and CF double I written at the same time because they're basically the same thing. Okay. So, what's the IGI? Uh, what is that? IGI is instrument ground instructor. He's oh, okay. got a. Uh, advanced uh, ground instructor which is g uh, agi mm-hmm. which by the way sam i have both of those ratings see even to this day i well i have a cfi as well so i guess that's three ratings cf double i i have all the eyes uh, except for uh, the only thing i don't have is sailplane and a glider so but anyways um i would definitely knock out as many as those written at one time that you can looking forward especially knowing that you're going to do uh, double I probably with the IGI get done at the same time. Excellent advice from somebody now, who has experience. If you guys, uh, if I heard you guys call it a PPL when you get a private pilot's uh, Yeah, correct. everybody, but that's not actually technically correct. It's, um, I guess, a PPC. a PPC. Yes. So what is a, I mean, we have a PPL because we get a license, but right. you get a certificate. Yeah, we don't get licenses. We get certificates. Certificates. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. And I don't know, yeah. I guess just everybody just says pi- private pilot's license or PP, PPL, um, but it's technically not not right. Yeah, it's Okay, it just confused me. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't even go with PPC, I would just say private pilot. Yeah, there you go. That's really what, what, what it is. I mean, if you look at your, your, your ticket, it's a certificate ticket. And, which and, is now a plastic card, by the way. It used to be used to be a paper uh, license, and it, they've switched to plastic cards a long time ago. Um, but that's you, you. You'd either call it a certificate or a ticket. So it's a private yeah. pilot license. And Sam does I just point out that yeah. Dr. Steph has just messaged us a picture of her at her conference working hard. Have you seen that? Yeah, yes, I, I just saw did that, see that too. Come across. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thanks, yeah. Steph. Yeah, she's hard at uh, work at the she conference. She's hard at work. Oh, yeah. 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 Those I want mighty the, nice glasses, by the way. That's a pretty chilly-looking conference room. <laughs> it is. Oh, uh, the, the, the terrible condition she's having to endure. Okay. Uh, well, with that, that's the end of our feedback um, folder for today's episode. And if you want to learn more about the show, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. 
where you'll have information about the crew, the community, which is the most important part of this whole thing is the community, uh, merchandise, um, the live page. What else do we have over there? Information about the coffee fund. If you want to hear some of the crew logs that we're alluding to on the show. Uh, let's see what else. And just the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us uh, out with your with your hard earned dollars and social media. Uh, Captain Nick, can you fill us in on how they can kind of follow us between shows? Sure, you can find us on uh, Facebook by going to uh, facebook.com forward slash airline pilot guy. And you can find us on uh, Twitter, I'm sorry, Twitter, by uh, tweeting uh, at APG crew. Okay. And also we have uh, a group on Slack, and Hillel will tell us about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And I guess until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. So long. See you next time. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline hot guy I fly America oh, Airline hot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time I can land this old plane. I can land it just fine. Airline, I guy. I fly America. Oh, airline, pilot guy. He can land in heavy fall. Oh, airline, pilot guy. I fly America. Boy, I go.